guys what's up it is week 250 i know there should be some big celebration but technically it's not the five-year anniversary until two week week 260 i should probably plan something big for that i'm not sure if i am i don't know i play it i just go play it by ear whatever we do so uh yeah let's hop into the reviews and the first up is going to be from mvd rewind and this is ghost riders now, I try to keep, like, the plastic. Sometimes you'll do that. You open on the top and keep the plastic to protect. I don't know. Sometimes I do it. Sometimes I don't. Eh, it is what it is. But, uh, so, Ghost Riders. This is um, one that I had actually never seen. It was made in 87, uh, is it? 87? It might have been a little before that. Um, I note that because there was another uh, kind of um, ghost uh, cowboy horror movie, um, Ghost Town which uh, Full Moon or Empire Pictures did back in the day, um, used the same theme from the Spooky, I mean, from the Ghoulies 2 um, by Albert Band. And I remember that movie being fairly decent. I think this one predates it. And uh, in the commentary and the special features and stuff, the, the um, is it the writer or producer? They were talking about how they kind of wanted to do something like that, a little, you know, like a horror western, which isn't very typical. So this movie opens up in a period piece setting. It opens up in the Old West uh, period piece, and they're ready to hang some infamous outlaw. But before they can do it, this preacher, well, they basically, you know, a lynch mob shows up to the uh, jail and they grab him. Uh, this infamous prisoner, the sheriff's trying to stop it. And in the commotion, the uh, outlaw's gang shows up. There's a big shootout, but uh, the preacher ends up going through with it and he hangs the outlaw. We fast forward to modern time and we meet some kind of historians who are interested in the stuff and some relatives of that historian, people related to them. And they're kind of going out to meet that uh, historian in that area and stuff and do some, I think they're just kind of like relaxing and stuff, bring some friends along. Um, so it turns out that, of course, uh, one of them is the ancestor of this priest or this reverend who uh, c committed, you know, who, who hung this criminal or hanged. I always get mixed up which one it is. And of course, that gang the ghost riders they come back with a vengeance so um the first thing i noticed about this movie is in the opening it, it's a it's a um obviously an independent regional kind of horror film i believe made in texas so it does have budget constraints but right in the opening of the movie they have a lot of squibs going off a lot of shootouts and you're like this is pretty ambitious you have a lot of people getting shot a lot of people getting killed and uh yeah although it does seem kind of like some uh old you know kind of Wild West recreation kind of stuff going on. I have no problem with that. Like I said, I was happy with the ambition. I was happy with seeing a lot of squibs. You don't see that nowadays. The squibs just seem like they're a big pain in the ass. So uh, that was kind of pleasant to see that. Pleasant in a, a grotesque kind of way, but uh, just by the ambition of it. And we basically have kind of a... Um, um, I don't know how to say like a chase story here. The group of friends is being chased by the outlaws. And of course they're armed as well. One being a Vietnam vet and they bring some of the Vietnam kind of conversations among one of the characters. And that's kind of put into that element as well. And uh, yeah, so they basically have to survive against these ghost riders. Now, right in the beginning when they actually start having their conflicts at first, um, a couple of them are shot right away. And I was like, Oh, so there's already two out of the five baddies that have come back dead. And then they just keep coming. Well, I was like, Oh shit, that's pretty cool. So, there's a lot of people getting shot of this one. Uh, yeah, it, it's overall, it's decent. I think the opening uh, is probably one of the most ambitious parts of the film. 
The concept is cool, too. Um, and it's funny, it's like they're called ghosts, but they work more as, like, zombies in a lot of ways, but they're not flesh-eating zombies, you know, because they get shot and they can shoot. Um, they're not your typical spooky haunting ghosts, although they are kind of, they're out for revenge kind of ghosts, but they can use weapons and they can be taken down for short periods of time. Um, as far as the, uh, the how it looks, it, it was a low-budget film, I believe, shot on 16mm. So um, you can expect, you know, some, some decent stuff, like, remastered, but nothing completely amazing, right? I remember a lot of people were complaining when they saw the Arrow uh, edition of uh, Hellraiser, and you're like, you guys understand this is a super low-budget film, and, and not at all the elements, and not everything can be uh, worked up to perfection. Like, you know, and not everything has the elements. And I thought this looked fairly decent. Um, the the movie overall, like I said, it, it's kind of a curio, and it's worth watching for that. I wasn't absolutely in love with the thing or anything, but like I said, I enjoyed my time with it, and I'm glad I got to see it. It was one of these ones that was lost on VHS for years, and it had... Um, I, I wonder if they have a, a reversible cover here, because I, I, I believe the original VHS did not look necessarily like that. If I'm not mistaken, they were riding on horses, if, if I'm not 100. I, I believe I remember seeing that VHS a lot, um, just kind of like sought-after VHS. So as far as the special features are concerned we have an audio commentary director of photography producer um thomas l calloway writer producer james d Morris, and moderator steve ladshaw um and steve ladshaw is actually a director himself um i think he kind of worked under fred olin ray and he did a bunch of stuff um he did vampire trailer park from 1991 which is crazy and uh he did um the kind of semi-sequel or semi-remake to what was it um uh, well, geez, it's Biohazard, I think, from 1994. So Steve Ladshaw has a couple pictures under his belt as well. Then we have Bringing Out the Ghost, the making of Ghost, uh, Ghost Riders, with a new uh, original documentary, which is pretty cool. And then low-budget films, on, and that's all on set of the Ghost Riders, vintage documentary. And then we have movie stills and behind-the-scenes pictures and everything like that. So it's a fairly ambitious, ambitious regional uh, horror film that uh, I think has a certain amount of charm, and I actually enjoyed it myself. So um, it's not perfect, but I'm glad I got the final see it because it was one of those ones that was kind of lost forever okay the next one is from 88 films and yeah this is one of the shaw brothers films they've been putting out stateside this is their fourth release and this is the flag of iron and i must admit i've been very impressed with how 88 films uh united states output has looked now, like, I had a couple of their uh, imports, and I had no complaints, but, like, from the the, uh, the Nazi exploitation film they put out to the Shaw Brothers stuff, uh, Chinese boxer and everything, everything looked really solid, and um, Flag of Iron is no different. I always double-check on the Shaw Brothers titles, because uh, <laughs> they have so many alternate names, and they all sound kind of similar. So, the plots are all fairly similar on a lot of these Shaw Brothers movies as well. This is directed by, uh, what is it, Chang Chu, or I, I mispronounced it. He, this guy did a slew of them. He, I believe he's the same director behind the Five Deadly Venoms and the crippled avengers which are two of the best shaw brothers movies i personally have seen i thought they were fantastic um yeah so this one it actually is part of the five venom cycle so it has uh three of the five venoms uh major kind of players in here if you guys are familiar it, the five venoms were um they were like a, a traveling kind of a troop and they were in a lot of martial arts movies directed by this director for a period of time from the shaw brothers um they kind of go by like their names or code names in from the five venoms so you have like the centipede the lizard you know the toad so this one actually has um the student uh who's in five venoms it has i believe the lizard and the centipede so yeah you never trust the centipede after you watch the five venoms they kind of develop all their own characters so when i see them pop up in other movies i'm like i don't i don't i don't trust him anyways i thought this one was really entertaining and the first thing i noticed is all the characters in this group and i don't want to say a gang because they're a little bit more peaceful than a gang but they really are a gang so we have these two different gangs um 
I'm losing my train of thought already. We have these two different gangs that are kind of uh, at each other's throats. Um, one is kind of into, you know, prostitution and, and a lot of really shady things that they don't, the other gang particularly thinks the way they handle it is not right. Um, the main gang reminds me of the Warriors. That's the first thing I noticed from their vests and everything. This is made before, you know, the Warriors. And I, the commentary points out as well, the guys come in and they say, throw these guys in the Warriors instead of the Baseball Furies. And I was like, hi, I thought the same thing. Um, so it's obviously not lost on anybody that, you know, the Warriors or Walter Hill or, you know, so many people have been inspired by these Shaw Brother movies. They're kind of originators and just a, a lot of people have a lot of love for the Shaw Brothers, and these were very influential movies. So um, it turns out that the gang kind of uh, goes against this one gang, and it's very funny how it's handled, too, because there's a, a prostitute, a woman in a bag, like in this sack, and they're like, was she doing this on her own free will? Because they have no problem with prostitution, but they just have a problem with, you know, taking women and forcing them into prostitution. So anyways, they uh, kind of disrupt this gang's kind of activity, and um, it starts a little like this gang war between them. There's a lot of fights, um, and, and pretty soon there's a big all-out fight and war and somebody the gang leader is actually their gang leader is actually killed but they kind of destroy a lot of the other gangs several of their members are dead and it, it seems really shady what's happened um there's somebody there to take the spot over for the uh the gang right away and there's uh there's a lot of shady shit going on somebody takes the fall for it and yeah years later he's kind of in the servitude working as like a waiter in a low rent and everything and assassins keep coming to take him out um, until his friend shows up well he as shows up and kind of like explains all this stuff and they figure out that they were double crossed. But one of the coolest aspects is so he understands that uh, after he's been double crossed that all these people in his life that are working these menial jobs are actually freaking assassins. So there's this this great like I don't know 20 to 30 minute scene where everybody runs into um, it, uh, goes after him and they all have like kind of like their martial arts or I don't want to say their martial arts but their styles a little bit are kind of mixed with their jobs so it's very fun like uh, kind of slight spoiler we have like a butcher and waiters and like the fortune teller they're all coming after him so we get a bunch of really cool unique fight scenes anybody that doesn't know the five venoms are really great at what they do they always kind of in, incorporate weapons into the play and it's fantastic this one obviously there's a lot of flag play I know people like flags with, like, wrapping people up in flags stabbing them with the, the staffs all that kind of shit that's really interesting it's really well done and it's just something you don't typically see right and you gotta think the choreograph stuff is just amazing so uh of course it's going to come down to these two realizing they were betrayed and they go after the boss but there's some people in the gang that agree with them some that don't and we have this giant battle at the end this one was really entertaining like i said i enjoyed it not as quite as much as the five venoms or crippled avengers but damn near close i i really like it it's very entertaining stuff like i said these are all good like, I've never watched a Shaw Brothers movie and said, wow, that was a piece of crap. And, and I've watched uh, like 20 or so. I know there's experts. There's like 600 movies. So I never get to all of them. But every one I've seen, I've enjoyed to a certain extent. And this is one of the one of the ones that I would put towards the, towards the top. Um, as far as special features are concerned, we have a slipcase with brand new artwork by uh, Kung Fu Bob O'Brien. Booklet notes, Red and Black Attack by Andrew Graves. Double-sided fold-out poster, and then the features are HD Master, the original 35mm negatives, and 2-3-5-1 aspect ratio. Um, we have two different languages, of course, English and Mandarin, but we have this audio commentary with Asian cinema experts Mike Leader and uh, Arnie uh, Venema. Uh, and those guys are pretty funny. They obviously love the Shaw Brothers, and, and they start to get into some stuff about them when they lived in Hong Kong and, and how it works a little bit. Anyways, I, I would really recommend checking this one out if you haven't seen it. And this character 
character here is really awesome. He's kind of like a lone wolf kind of type character, and he uses his his super like his special weapons where he throws at pretty freaking awesome and uh yeah and these like i said i really enjoy the shaw brothers movies because they're stakes you can guarantee that somebody you like is gonna bite it and that's not something i can say about action movies and people are like why would you want characters you like to to die is it because i want to know there's danger i want to know that they're playing for keeps uh, you know that's why i just i've lost a lot of uh interest in newer action films because of that and a lot of people say maybe it's the cgi that doesn't maybe i don't know because uh, I forgive CGI movies I love, so it's probably not. And not CGI, not all CGI is bad, but you know what I mean? I'll forgive bad CGI in movies I love, and I won't even notice some of the better stuff. So uh, it's not that. It's just stakes. These movies have stakes. And I, I love that. So check this one out, uh, Flag of Iron. I think I'll get to the next Shaw Brothers uh, 88 films next week. So yeah, good stuff. Okay, this next one here is from SRS Studios, Sub Rosa Studios. And a lot of times they'll put out independent features, you know, American independent features. But every once in a while they'll put out like a lot of Asian or Japanese cinema. They've been putting out a lot of these like kind of low budget kaiju films, which is really cool. But uh, in, the, in the state side, they recently just put out The Legend of the Stardust Brothers. Now they had a limited Blu-ray. I believe that might be a uh, sold out you can check the website and they also have a, a relatively inexpensive dvd that they just put out um if you are overseas there is a third windows pictures release of that as well and i gotta tell you i imported it i ordered it as well because i enjoyed this freaking movie so much so the legend of the star bro, uh, starburst uh star star uh stardust brothers starburst brothers they're candy guys so star uh stardust brothers a lot of crazy things going through my brain so uh yeah this is a musical and, um, you know, I, uh, I don't, I would say that I, I like a lot of weird musicals. That's kind of my thing. Like for, for musicals, I'm not going to go pop in like a classic fifties musical. Not that I have anything against that. It's just not something that I gravitate towards. But if we're talking Rocky Horror Picture Show, Shock Treatment, Phantom of the Paradise, um, even Poultry Guys, uh, Stage Fright, all those movies I have a lot of fun with. I love them. I do love music. I am not um, into music as much as I am movies, but uh, I, I think almost every human being has a love for music, and I do love a lot of songs and musicals. And Legend of the Stardust Brothers is no different. So this is a really goofy, zany movie. It's 85, so it's, it's definitely inspired by stuff like Rocky Horror Picture Show. I noticed a lot of similarities, mostly to Phantom of Paradise in terms of the plot. So we have these two... Um, they call it, they're called the Stardust Brothers. They're on stage and they're not very popular. Nobody seems to like them. They're dressed really strange in these weird outfits. Everybody's kind of booing them. Um, and, and they're really comical and goofy and weird. And, uh, they basically say, do you guys, we weren't always so big of losers. Do you guys want to know how we got here? And we have the kind of flashback story. So we go through their entire story, starting from rags to riches, and then obviously to rags again where they're at. But, uh, yeah, the story is a lot of fun. Like I said, Phantom, and Par Phantom of Paradise inspired some weird kind of mysterious yet very kind of crooked seemingly uh music executive decides to give them a deal these two guys are not friendly with each other but they are aware of each other they said you two have to be partners you got to forget your band you got to forget the girl that you guys obviously like who uh a a who's a also a singer you got to forget all these people it's just got to be you two together no matter what and so basically uh they form a band and pretty soon soon enough they're pushed forward and they like start to gain popularity and they have a lot of the musical numbers of their songs uh, I thought a lot of them were catchy and wonderful the set design was super obscure and surreal and weird and started reminding me of stuff like Forbidden Zone by Richard Elfman which is a really entertaining crazy film and it started getting to that kind of way that that, uh, that absurd 
absurd stuff and and just a goofy comedy and i just love the two lead performances and um the bad the, then we enter of course a bad character a bad guy a bad singer who's going to take their spot he's kind of in the david bowie style but you know he has a a really even more evil father than himself and i won't spoil any of that but it's absolutely hilarious the reveal um, but yeah, like I said, a couple of the songs I absolutely adore. The one that they do on the stairs is really clever. Number one, how it goes. Well, maybe I'll find a song and put it in the background. But I, I caught myself like trying to sing along. Obviously, don't sing Japanese. Uh, I can barely speak, right, as you guys know. But uh, I was trying to, you know, just kind of like saying mumbling words I could. But it was stuck in my head. Um, and, and I absolutely loved it. I, I went back and listened to that song a couple more times. But yeah, so it, it's just a really fun, uh, bizarre, weird film. And this is one that it's not going to be for everybody some people will find it you know grating they won't get the comedy they won't find it funny they'll find the absurdity too weird or something like that and it won't be approachable for them but if you get it if you connect with it i think that you'll absolutely love it it's going to be a love or hate i think and i'm on the love side i i love this freaking thing there's an interview with the director on here which was nice to see you know how the film came together you know i believe he made like a uh uh, college film or something or short along that and he got some kind of static and everything and some people kind of looked towards him and he decided he wanted to make this thing and he approached a lot of different singers a lot of different people who were famous in like manga, mangas and music and stuff to be have cameos in the film and he asked so many people he asked Kurosawa but he was busy so many people and like he got who he got and the two leads I believe are more on the mu- from the musical world they haven't done too many movies there was a sequel made uh recently within the last five ten years i believe it was made recently so that's pretty crazy um to think i'll have to check that out when i get a chance but anyways i really like this and uh there's a crazy nightmare sequence that incorporates you know lots of monsters and stuff and zombies and i thought that was really fun um yeah as you can see there's lots of bizarre stuff going on let's take a closer look at that cover and uh yeah i i thought this was wonderful i like the two characters the zany goofy humor Oh, just really fun stuff. Legend of the Stardust Brothers. I love it. Good stuff. Okay, we're going to go to the third part of the Santo collection. And, uh, you know... I'll be a little bit more brief with these two as the disc, uh, the special feature on this disc is kind of just like a photo gallery. So let's start with the first one on here, Santo versus Frankenstein's Daughter. Uh, that is right. So essentially this is kind of a bizarre, kind of mad uh, experiment deal. So we have this uh, this um, Frankenstein's Daughter, of course, and she's doing these mad experiments and she has a group of like soldiers or, or goons that work for her, I'd say like a society. And it turns out that they're very old, although they look very young and they've been taking a serum to to stay young forever. Of course, the serum is not working as well as it should. Um, kind of a very a very typical mad scientist story. You think um, the rejuvenator has a similar thing. You need the serum to stay young. Um, is the man who could cheat death a similar deal, the Hammer film? So anyways, uh, she realizes that she needs Santo's blood to kind of crack the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the curse of it. And she needs it and it'll keep her young. So of course, they want Santo. They kidnap him. Uh, Santo's not going to go easy, of course, and he has a lot of fight with these goons there's also a side uh side plot well not side plot but kind of she goes around and kidnaps older people and injects them with everything so they'll work you know they'll be younger and be her like minions and everything to fight santo um a fairly like uh typical kind of bad scientist story i thought this one looked really good though i thought that they started
start they start actually looking better as they go on and that I don't mean like as technical I, I think it's more of like the uh, elements that they have to offer on this these latter ones so I think Frank uh, Santo versus Frankenstein's daughter actually was one of the better looking ones and also the set design was really good they had you know the dungeons and the labs and everything like that it's very typical Santo but it's very well done as far as you know um, the, the, the set designs and stuff and the picture quality is on this one so I enjoyed it I thought it was pretty good all these movies are very much uh you kind of right like they're good i entertain i'm entertained by every one of them but uh, i've yet to see one that really knocked my socks off now if i think if i revisit the one from 1970 uh, um the one with all the monsters in it i think that i would find even more affinity for it so like watching these for the first time like i have nothing bad to say about them they're just very entertaining very you know just uh comfort food kind of just watch santo beat up some monsters and everything's gonna be all right and uh yeah i, I like santo himself you know he just has a good quality about it. he's not too judgmental he's very heroic he's tough and he gets his shit kicked out of him a lot too in the wrestling matches he's always learning losing and there's always wrestling matches right he's always like losing he'll win the first man uh, first uh in Mexico, a lot of times they'll do best two out of three. So he'll win the first match, lose the second match to create suspense. And then, you know, Santo will be losing and uh, he'll come back at the last minute, kind of like Hulk Hogan or any other classic, uh, you know, uh, face. So, um, yeah, that is Santo versus Frankenstein's daughter. Okay, the next one is the first time that Blue Demon or Demon is making an uh, appearance on the set, and this is Frank. Uh, this is Santo and Blue Demon versus Dracula and the Wolfman. Super creative name. So uh, yeah. Anyways, this uh, involves uh, Santo, who is basically gonna fight Wolfman and Dracula. But what happens is there is a hunchback who realizes that if he brings back Dracula and his number one servant, the Wolfman, and that Dracula will pay him in riches. He wants to be uh, rewarded by Dracula's treasure, yada, yada, yada. So this hunchback ends up bringing them back, um, and what he needs is the blood of a family that uh, had cursed Dracula or something like that, the last, uh, you know, kind of like a Van Helsing family lineage or something like that that Dracula can't stand. So he gets the patriarch, uh, the remaining uh, male of the family, kills him, slits his throat in a, in a fairly grotesque way for this kind of movie. Santa movies usually aren't this gory or anything like that. The blood looked very realistic. You know, you'd expect to see that 60s, 70s style, bright pink Herschel Gordon Lewis or Dawn of the Dead Blood or even Suspiria. But no, it's pretty dark and it looks fairly good. So he uh, sprays the blood all over the skeletons of the Wolfman and Dracula a la, you know, a Hammer Dracula film that brings back Christopher Lee for the 30th time. Um, and the Dracula and Wolfman come back. Wolfman is wearing a yellow like button-up shirt <laughs> as the Wolfman. It's fucking hilarious. Uh, the guy who does all the introductions mentions that too. He says no matter what wolfman is always wearing that yellow shirt very funny so dracula's idea is we're going to capture as many people as we possibly can we're going to turn everybody into werewolves or vampires so we can spread our plague around you know the planet but first we must stop that family that has betrayed me of course these guys seek out santo's help santo gets involved santo can't handle it on his own he can't take them all out so him and blue demon are basically gonna team up it's blue demon but they always call him blue demon in these movies because pronunciation whatever and uh uh, basically, uh, him and Blue Demon, Santo and Blue Demon, have to face off against werewolves, Dracula, Dracula's brides, and of course, a bunch of criminals and gangsters that are working for the Hunchback. Um, there's this weird element with this blessed sword or, or dagger in there that Dracula can't touch. That's kind of like the curse, you know, the, the cross or something that will stop him. 
but there's a very funny moment that happens with the hunchback that I love too. So, I mean, like, it's a monster mash, uh, obviously in the vein of the Universal films when they got in the later day cycle where we're like, we're going to cram as many fucking monsters as we can get in this movie, um, but it has also two Mexican wrestlers that are going to whoop ass. Uh, yeah, it's entertaining. There's a lot of fighting in here. Um, the Wolfman looks awesome, and the Wolfman also, as a human, is infiltrates, you know, the family and everything like that. Um, there's kids in peril. Uh, people die, uh, again. Uh, people that you like die. They're used as pawns and kind of like zombie-like vampires. Um, yeah, this one also looked pretty good. Um, I, I mean, thought it looked pretty solid. Good set designs. Nice, nice, rich uh, quality for, uh, you know, these low-budget kind of Santo movies. So I'd said this is the best-looking disc out of the, the three discs I've watched so far. So that is Santo and Blue Demon versus Dracula and the Wolfman. So, yeah, check it out if it sounds like it's up your alley. Okay, the last one from the Sylvia Crystal 1970s collection is Julia. And this one, I believe, was made in uh, West Germany, which obviously happening during the time of the Berlin Wall. So, yeah, this one I, again was uh, unfamiliar with. In fact, every movie in the set I wasn't familiar with. So, Julia. This is a little bit more lighthearted than the other material, although I would say that um, Playing With Fire had its lighthearted elements to it. It was playful. The movie was playful. I don't know if it was lighthearted. It makes any sense. So, this one also feels more lighthearted. I don't want to say it, it, on surface level, you'll think it's just kind of lighthearted, but it has some dark elements as well. It's a coming-of-age story, so also a sexual coming-of-age story. We have a young man who uh, is traveling to hang out with his father and some other relatives you know, the father's mother and stuff and, and a zany uncle and his wife and aunt and everything like that. And kind of this summer cottage or whatever it is. They're, 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 they seem very well off. And, uh, there's a local girl in Sylvia Crystal that he has a thing for, um, and uh, they have this strange relationship, and, and it's it gets goes to really dark, kind of strange, different places. Remind you, this is made in the '70s. It's in a Europe. It, it, the sexual content amongst you know older people and younger people, although it is still you know probably not. It's kind of frowned upon back then. I'm sure of it. It's not the same as today. So obviously, it's a product of its time. I have to say these things sometimes. So essentially what happens is like in the opening of the film, it's really fun because there's a scene in a train and the young man, obviously, you know, he has, you know, he's having a sexual awakening and he he's home from like high school or college. I believe he's very young, like 17, 18 years old. I think he's a, uh, so, um, his father is always, uh, always abroad and he's hard to spot and everything like that. So he's meeting him at the train station, but while he's on the train, he kind of, uh, spots this, uh, this young, beautiful woman and he starts to older, of course, than him. And he starts to try to, he wants things to happen, but it doesn't happen with him. It happens with somebody else. And when they get off the train, the father uh, meets him, and uh, he. It's let's just say that uh, there's a little bit of connective stuff in that that I thought was amazing. I was like, that's a great way to start it. It comes back into the ending, which I thought was very clever. But uh, yeah, this it, it does have a lot of comedy elements to this film, like a lot of the characters, especially the brother-in-law, is just an over-the-top, like kind of absurdist artist where he plays piano and he's obsessed with lesbians. His wife uh, has a uh, this. They have this uh, maid around, and everybody's constantly like groping this maid that. The well, the couple are, and it's just, they're also, like, fall into all the vices, you know, uh, lust and gluttony, especially when they eat, and it's just, like, they're this these, like, over-the-top pair that are just insane, um, but it, it, it makes for a lot of creative, weird, funny, silly, uh, kind of disturbing scenes at the same time, so there's that going on in the film, 
Um, like, it's like you're trying to have this love story, this coming-of-age story, and you're just surrounded by your insane family throughout the entire film, including the grandmother, who just seems to be having a blast throughout the entire film. But, uh, like I said, it's just, like, how how the two... Like, Sylvia Crystal is also this young girl who's coming-of-age, and she they seem to have, like, this bond at first, but... Things are, are go take a darker turn on a boat ride, and it gets it gets crazy, and it, it's just like it kind of does capture that adolescent kind of feeling, how you would feel during this situation, the shyness, but also the the angst and stuff, and it does it in a. I don't want to say it makes it interesting in an adult aspect. There's so many movies that are from a kid's point of view or something like that, where they completely lose you because they just seem too childish or too immature. And they're, they're not making like a statement on being that coming of age or anything like that. It doesn't feel, uh, I guess adult enough to get across to an adult, but this one feels adult enough to get to across to adult, but also it still brings back those feelings of being younger if that makes any sense to anybody. Um, it's shot in a gorgeous place. You know, there's a lot on the water. Um, everything is, is, is pretty beautiful here. There's there's a lot of, like, sexually risque things in here, of course. Like we said, we have, like, sexual relations between younger and older people, and they're supposed to be minors. They're obviously not minors in real life. So, um, and, and there's a lot of stuff on a tennis court. Um, just leave that out there as well. Uh, there's a good scene with Romeo and Juliet kind of reenacted there. <laughs> I just recently rewatched Romeo and Juliet. So get a lot of different, uh, variations of the Romeo and Juliet story lately. Uh, yeah. Anyways, I thought this was, uh, a really interesting film. Like I said, and, and like, I don't mean that as insult. A lot of people are like, it's interesting, like, or it's fun. Like, I, a lot of people take that as like a backhanded compliment and I never mean it as that like a lot of movies they should be they should entertain you or they should interest you they should they should teach you something or they should they should you know uh, like light a spark in your mind to entertain you or to interest you in certain things and this one kind of does both like I this is probably the easiest watch of the, the the box set like just putting it in and the most approachable for most people. And uh, it does have a message. It does. It does say a lot of things. And like I, I, I enjoyed this one. You know, I, I like. I, if I had to rank them, it's very hard to rank them because I like three of them quite a bit. And the only one that I had a lot of trouble with uh, engaging with was playing with fire. And that director is just completely different and unique. And it's just I don't know if that I'm gonna mesh well with his mentality or what he's trying. They're just so bizarre. Um, I knew there were some special features on here. There is a commentary, and uh, the I, I did listen to some of that. Um, he brings into some of the stuff about you know uh, Sylvia Crystal this actually being made before Emmanuel, or not. Um, it was being made while before Emmanuel was released, or along those lines, or something like that. So she wasn't the big star. They were kind of focusing more on the uh, the love interest of the husband to be kind of the big star, but she kind of got pushed to the back. So like all the acting's great. Everybody in this movie is really top notch. There's not a weak performance in the bunch, um, and it is like ensemble cast at times. Like there's a lot of people and a lot of goofy fun. And I just love the scene where the girlfriend of the father has to eat dinner with everybody. And it's just a fucking mess. You just be like, I want to leave. Like I can't like they bring out dessert and like the, the, the two like gluttonous pair just grab the whipped cream and just start shoving it in their face. And they're just so wasteful. These they're very like well off, like it pours down rain and they just leave all the food sitting out to get ruined. And it's just like, it just seems like they're just so like wasteful in a lot of ways as well. But this is Julia from the Sylvia crystal 1970s collection, which, also includes Playing With Fire, uh, Pistority 1943, Mysteries, that has Rugger Howard in it, and uh, yeah, Julia, that's the four, and I enjoyed all four of them to a certain extent. Um, like I said, maybe Mysteries is my favorite, and then we'll put Pistority 1943 and uh, and Juliet as a tie, and then my least favorite is Playing With Fire. Um, so yeah, interesting stuff. Check it out from Cult Epics Films. Um, it sounds like it's up your alley. Yeah, 
Okay, this next one is a real bizarre film, and this is from Anna Macabro, and this is The Laughing Woman. And I know this movie has a, a pretty good cult reputation. I had heard uh, a lot about it. I know that Kat Ellinger is a big fan of this film, and she does a commentary on here, which was really interesting. Um, she pointed out a lot of things about the film and you know her love for it and stuff like that. And somebody like that pointing out things is always helpful. Although I, I did enjoy this one. I thought it was a pretty crazy film. Uh, 1969. Um, it is kind Kind of like a feminist film, I would say. I don't even know how to go about it. Highly sexual movie. Uh, great set pieces. Great like art, uh, like uh, set design, and just crazy stuff and surreal and absurd and just bonkers. So we have here is this um, this young woman who ends up being kidnapped by this uh, this uh, I, I don't know what his position is. I want to say maybe a, uh, some sort of medical professional in sorts he ends up kidnapping or he's definitely well respected in society we'll put it that way he ends up kidnapping this woman and he starts to like kind of have all these monologues and stuff and he you get to the point where he says he just thinks that women are going to destroy the world that there's this big corrupt you know like this big conspiracy that they're all going to take over the world and and ruin everything and manipulate them and get rid of man and do uh, you know insemination and capture men's sperm he's clearly insane like, um, and so a big chunk of this movie, it's actually Dagmar Lassender, who's in a bunch of movies, including, um, uh, what is it? Secret photos of a woman above suspicion from 1970, which is a cool movie. And of course, uh, the, um, house by the cemetery, the Fulci movie, Dagmar is in a lot of films. She's kind of a cult actress and she's basically the star of this one. The, the male actor is in a bunch of stuff as well, but he has a great look on him, a very gaunt face, a very serious face, very chiseled guy, but uh, also just feels like he's approaching that middle-aged time and he's just you know almost in a midlife crisis at the same time and Cat Allinger compares his character to like that of American Psycho and you could kind of see it because he's always constantly worried about his physique and he has a lot of this workout equipment around his house like a pull-up bar and a swimming pool and it's like that weird obsession and also like just his thoughts are completely wrong and you would compare um his ideas his conspiracy theories and ideas to a lot of people that a lot of the shit you would read on the internet today from people so a lot of these mentalities and stuff like that they don't ever change and, they, and, and being in 1969 it's a little ahead of its time for that right um, or at least, I mean, it's always been there, but putting it in a film in 1969. So, uh, a lot of this film is just Dagmar being like kind of put to these sexual weird situations and being tortured and demoralized and, and, soon enough before a while you realize that not everything is as it seems there's head games going on there's but there's also like done to the weird psychedelic 60s moving into the 70s so it's a really good branching movie i'm thinking about that now where you have like a lot of the psychedelic late 60s moving into the nihilistic 70s it's a good branching thing there too um just like a a weird downbeat thing, but I wouldn't say it's downbeat because it's actually upbeat how it ends. And I don't want to spoil it. Um, upbeat how you look at it because, uh, I, I don't think Dagmar is the villain in this film at all. Um, but it, it's different. So like you think one thing and it completely turns on its head at the end. So, you know, I like that aspect. It's very cool, very unique in that way. I thought it looked fantastic. In fact, Mondo Macabro put out four of the best-looking Blu-rays I've seen in a long time for the four releases they just recently had, The Laughing Woman, Succubus, School of Death, and uh, Haruko the Goblin. They all look freaking great. They all uh, looked amazing. Um, as far as the special features are concerned, we have a brand-new 4K transfer. You can tell it's, it looks very uh, great. I mean, very great. Uh, the colors pop a lot. Um, and this movie, it benefits from that. 
because there's a lot of crazy set designs. There's a lot of just beautiful stuff going on in the whole entire film. Uh, a lot of nudity as well. I know that's a plus for a lot of people. And then we have a digitally, uh, and then we have interview with the writer director Piero uh, Shiva Zappa, and then the audio commentary from Cat Ellinger. Video essay on the film's production design from Rachel Nisbet. Animated photo novel by Jack Hughes so far. Trailers, exclusive new color uh, cover art from Justin Coffey. Optional subtitles. So yeah. Anyways, uh, if this one is if for people that like strange cinema or just beautiful cinema in general, or fans of Dagmar, I would recommend checking this out. Uh, yeah, this is one that would get better on uh, reputed viewings. And like, even if you look at the back, like you see the mannequin and the doubles and stuff like that, like the movie's going to play with you visually. It's going to play with you mentally, emotionally, all that kind of stuff. And it's a good twist and turns in there. The Laughing Woman, great film. Okay. The next one here, everybody and their brother said something about it online, and I guess I'm no different. I am no different. I'm not special, so I'm going to talk about it a little bit. And this is Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022. Uh, yeah, so this is produced by Fetty Alvarez, who uh, directed the Evil Dead remake, Don't Breathe, Don't Breathe 2. Uh, probably had his hands in some other things. Um, yeah, and this is directed by, I'm not too familiar with this director. I think this is only a second feature film. This was made in Bulgaria. This is a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie made in Bulgaria. And to me, now I, I'm going to try to be fair with this, okay? Um, you're never, ever, ever going to be able to recreate the magic of the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Even when the second one came out, I'm pretty sure most people hated it at the time. They were confused what the fuck it was. Only years down the line did people actually start to fall in love with part two. You know, time and stuff, and they see a lot of things they didn't see before. Um, I'm a fan of two. When I first saw it, I probably was just a little confused as, like, age 10, 12, whatever the fuck I saw it. I was like, what the fuck is this? I didn't hate it. I just was baffled by it. And I've kind of been baffled by every sequel that it was ever made. Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise is one of the sloppiest franchises in horror history. Franchise films, though, they... they Everybody loves talking about them, no matter what. Like, that's the thing. Like, nobody... They'll talk about the worst film of a franchise for four hours before they'll check out a unique, you know, hidden gem or look for a hidden gem. I don't know why. It's just kind of the way it is, you know? It's kind of like the reality show of horror films, the, the sequels of franchise movies. And I don't mean that. I mean, kind of mean it as an insult, but a lot of times... I do like a lot of franchise films. I like more maybe, like, the parts twos, and then I lose a lot of interest in franchise movies. But this one was on Netflix, like I said. Um... I had heard a lot of complaints about the trailer already. It, it's so aggravating with franchise movies because it's just so much negativity or, or it's so much blind negativity or blind positivity before the movie's even out. There's just people so mad that people are upset that it was made and then there's just people so uh, mad at the trailer, everything, yada, yada, yada. It's just like, at the end of the day, I barely give a shit. Like, I, I don't care if whatever. I'm just going to watch it or not watch it, then and I'll see how it is. And so it's very hard, like, I understand for a lot of people, myself included sometimes, to separate it from the original. Especially when it says, this is a direct sequel to the original film. And people say, why is it so hard to do? I, and I don't really know. A lot of times it just seems like um, they'll do the right things with cinematography or, or, or gore or something. They'll do a lot of aspects that people love. A lot of stuff kills gore and... They'll do this, but, but the scripts are always just kind of sloppy. And you just say, that doesn't cost much to look over that script two or three times, right? I mean, it does cost something, but the scripts are always the weakest part. So, But I'm not going to sit here and lie to everybody and act like all the sequels to Nightmare on Elm Street or Halloween or Texas Chainsaw Massacre made uh, like 30 years ago were riddled with plot holes too. It's just that time, you know, people learn to forgive or forget 
or not care or nostalgia and nostalgia is a hell of a drug i know i i'm obsessed with it look at this room so it's hard to determine really it is it's hard to determine for me if the movie's worth a shit half the time when it comes to these new franchise movies all i can say is i gotta check my brain at the door if I don't, I start to complain, especially if I'm comparing it to all the other sequels and being like, well, why would they make the same mistakes that all the other sequels made, yada, yada, yada. So first off, this is very much a product of its time, right? It's 2022, so the characters are going to be like the characters that you younger kids today are going to be the victims, yada, yada, yada. In 1974, you know, Jerry and Franklin and all them, they were the characters of that time. Toby Hooper, you know, made that movie. is very regional, very you know, one guy, not one guy, but it was really his ideas. And, and those characters in the movie, they don't seem weird. They don't seem outrageous. Franklin, you know, obviously a little outrageous, but I like them. I've always liked them and I felt like they were fairly normal, nothing personal against them. They weren't larger than life for the most part. They didn't seem out of place. And this one, they're, they're, they're people that kind of go around and they buy like small towns or, or run down places and they, they kind of gentrify and make a lot of money off it. So right away, right off the bat, they're not exactly the most likable people on earth. Um, they're also the type of people that will shove an old lady out of her house, but then they'll be mad about something on social media. So it's obviously they want these characters to kind of get their just comeuppance. And they do that a lot with these, and this, I'll probably have mild spoilers here. They do that a lot with the new horror franchises. They know that the stars of the movie are the Michael Myers. They are the Leatherface. They are the Freddy Krueger. They are the Jason Voorhees. So they have their hero shots. They want something bad to happen to these characters to where it looks like they're kind of redeeming themselves in a lot of ways, especially Leatherface, you know, it's like a Frankenstein-like character. He's misunderstood, so Leatherface, you know, let's let's get him so upset that he's almost on a vendetta or a revenge that we kind of understand why he's doing it. We can root for him because he's going to kill a bunch of, you know, the equivalent to modern-day yuppies, if that makes any sense. And and, and a lot of it kind of reflects all the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. And this one, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say spoilers now. Sally Hardesty's in it. But she's basically playing, you know, the Laurie Strode from the new films. But she, they, the old Texas Chainsaw Massacre did have that aspect with Dennis Hopper from Part 2 doing this. So it's nothing necessarily new. Um, it's just weird to make a direct sequel to the first one and seemingly forget the filmmaking techniques or, or anything that resembles the first movie. Right? So they didn't. They didn't obviously try to do the nihilism or nihilism or whatever. Like they didn't want that. They didn't want the semi-documentary feel. They didn't want it to be like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre in tone or in filmmaking style or even in character. Because this Leatherface and no Leatherface since Gunnar Hansen has ever acted like Gunnar Hansen did in those movies. If you watch his performance, the subtleties, the weirdness, the moving, it would be very hard to recreate that. I just don't know how they do it because there's a nervous like quality about it. And every time they try to have someone else fill in those shoes, whether it's a prequel or something else, I just, I never buy it. I, I'm not buying what they're selling. Even in part two, which I love, I don't really feel like Leatherface, you know what I mean? And I can forgive, obviously, I forgive part two. I don't hate Leatherface part three. It's been years. I don't really care for part four. I don't hate the remake. I don't hate the prequel. I don't care. I turned off Texas 3D. I don't care much for the Leatherface movie that came out a few years ago. So, like, I I'm hit and miss. I don't have any ownership of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think it's one of the greatest American horror films ever made, if not the greatest independent horror film ever made, next to Night of the Living Dead. Like, masterpiece. Hands down. Anybody that tells me different, I, I don't 
Like, I okay, that's your opinion. It's not going to change my opinion. I don't give a shit. So when I put this in, I didn't have expectations. I, I learned to check my brain at the door. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm some elitist or anything like this. It's stupid. It's a dumb fucking movie. Now, and, and I know if you're saying we're a direct sequel to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, people are like, well, how can you do, you have a chance to like make a truly beautiful, unique, amazing movie, direct sequel, but they're not going to do that anymore, I guess. They want to please fans, you know, fan service, a lot of fan service with just gore, but they did, they did this. They sat there and were like, hey, screw it. Let's make the chainsaw actually used as a weapon more. Let's do a lot of gore. And what the movie does do well is forget the script. Forget the forced bullshit of the Laurie Strode-style story of tracking down Leatherface. Forget it. I mean, I understand that people are so mad about this, but I have no expectations. I didn't have expectations on Halloween Kills. And I, at first, was watching that, nitpicking it, being very annoyed by some of the dialogue, some of the acting, some of the script. I didn't think it was very good. I didn't. I really didn't. But somebody kind of was like, relax, this is Halloween, like, 13. What do you want? And, like... When I was watching Nightmare on Elm Street 4 as a kid, I never thought, oh man, that doesn't make any fucking sense. That's stupid. And it is fucking stupid, okay? Now as an adult, I see that, but I have that fondness already built into it. So it's hard to separate nostalgia when you're thinking of these new franchise films and, and people be like, well, you like this this bad sequel to this movie and there's no way you can tell me that's good. And they're like, yeah, but it's different. Why is it different? Because you saw it when you were eight. That's why it's different. And I understand that. I'm, I will admit that. And, and I know. Like, I'm not saying that this movie's great. This is a good movie or anything like that. I'm really not. I don't think it is. But I don't care. I, I don't watch these movies to see some hidden masterpiece on this direct-to-Netflix Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. I really didn't have any expectations. And you know what? It delivered on the gore. It delivered on the kills. Those of Texas Chainsaw Massacre deserve, uh, deserve better? Fuck yes, it does. Is it going to get it? No. You can't. I, I don't think it will. I don't ever think it will. And right away, you should have known it's not going to get any better because they decided to make it in Bulgaria. They're <laughs> making a sequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the most Texas horror movie ever made in fucking Bulgaria. It goes right there on the thing. They don't give a fuck. Sorry, they don't. And uh, I, I get just I need to learn not to give a shit. And sometimes I don't. And I guess watching this, I was like, ah, fuck it. I don't give a shit. I just have to check my brain at the door. If you could check your brain at the door, you'll be okay. You really will. But I understand if you can't. Like, if you can't, if it's just going to drive you crazy. Like, I, I started to cringe a little bit. Like, when Sally Hardesty came in and she was like, oh, you don't remember? I was like, this is bad. This is, like, corny bad. Like, But I think in a group setting, it could be very hilarious. Now, I'm not trying to shit on the filmmakers either because... Some of the cinematography was good. Like, the set design was pretty good. I mean, there was nothing wrong technically about the movie for me as, as far as except that it just wasn't very Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but nor was the second one. So, like, all that stuff is cool. Uh, Leatherface is on TRT, man. That motherfucker must be, like, 74 years old. He's, like, he's running around, jumping around more than, like, the most athletic MMA fighters, man. He's doing, like, feats of amazing strength. And I don't know why they keep doing this. Like, they'll make sequels, like, 20 years later to, like, Halloween or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And everybody's just like, you know, let's just make them Jason Voorhees. People like Jason. So they, they want to just make it Jason Voorhees in all these movies. How he kills people. And like Latter-day Jason Voorhees too. So like they always do that. Um, and that's whatever. 
he's he's a superhero by this time, right? He's a superhero. It's so over the top. Um, every Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie after the first one felt like a fan film. They really do. Sometimes I like them, sometimes I don't. Doesn't really matter. Uh, I mean, these movies, is just like I said, you like it or don't. I'm not going to give this a glowing review. The special effects were really fun. The gore was fun. I checked my brain at the door. It was nice seeing Hope, William Hope in here from, uh, I think his name is William Hope from from Aliens and uh, Hellraiser 2. Um, Gore, Gorman, you were always an asshole. <laughs> yeah, so from Aliens 2. So, like, Aliens 2. Aliens. Alien, Aliens. So it's Aliens. But you know what I mean. Um, yeah. I don't care. Like, I have to learn not to get hung up on the stupid shit. It's not worth it. I mean, the whole movie is stupid. It's dumb. And, like, I love a lot of dumb movies. So where do I draw the line? Like, do, do like do I feel like it's heartless or soulless or something like that? I don't know. I don't fucking know. Like, am I getting annoyed by, like, the whole obvious, like, stuff that they're putting in there in, like, comparison, like, ham-fisted stuff? Like, um, it's there, but... Like, was it always there in mother movies and I was just too young to realize and now that I'm going in with, you know, like going in like just with that nostalgia, rose-tinted glasses that I don't notice it. Like, if I were 12 years old and I put this in, I would have a hell of a great time. I really would. Um, now, it doesn't have what I look for in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It doesn't have any of that gritty quality about it. It doesn't have any of that absolute terror that you're just wrong place, wrong time. It doesn't have any of the stuff I like in the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre at all. It really doesn't. But it has, you know, kind of like a fun, gory slasher that I would be entertained by. Like, hey, what if uh, Leatherface was killing a bunch of, you know, mostly unlikable characters? Why not? I don't care. What if it was so over the top and almost made, like, to the suit? Like, it's just like, it's not in the same grounded universe as the first film. None of them are. I don't know. Like, you gotta just check it out. Sounds like it's up your alley. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't love it. I, I don't hate it. I wasn't watching it being annoyed by it. Like, it didn't go back and, and try to, like, rewrite the history of the original. It would it continues, like, afterwards. It didn't rewrite the original, the his, history of the first one. And that's what annoyed me with Leatherface. Like, they're like, this is how Leatherface came to be. And then I watched it. I was like, well, I see what you're selling, and I'm just not buying it. I, I just don't buy it. Like, some people may. It's just not enough for me. It's just not enough. I just don't see that being Leatherface as a kid. And it's not something I wanted to see, I guess, is what I'm saying. So, I like this better than Leatherface. I do. I truly do. I like it better than Texas Chainsaw 3D, I think. And I didn't finish 3D, so that's not fair. Do I like it better than New Next Generation? I'm going to rewatch Next Generation for 94. Maybe I'll find some love for it. I mean, that movie's super goofy, but I, I don't love it, but hell. Like I said, you just got to sometimes just check your brain at the door for these franchise movies and stop nitpicking it and just letting yourself enjoy it. And I ended up doing that with the Halloween Kills about halfway through, and I enjoyed it. Um, I don't think this is character acts very much like Leatherface, but he kills a lot of fucking people. And if you're in it to see, if you want to see blood, you want to see gore, you want to see something short and fast-paced and, and just gory, then watch it. I don't think you'll be disappointed if you're looking for that. If you're looking for the next genius level Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, don't hold your breath. It ain't gonna fucking happen. I know some people would consider the remake that. And the remake does have some really cool aspects about it. I will give it that. But it also rubs me the wrong way in a lot of ways. I still like it. I still like it. And uh, I like the beginning too. But, you know, it's just hard. It's hard. It's so hard to compete and compare yourself with a masterpiece. You know, it, 
the movie's not being made by the same creators and stuff like that. It's very hard. So anyways, um, maybe don't have expectations when you watch these franchise sequels. I don't know. Maybe you didn't and you still hated it. I'm not telling you how to feel. I'm just telling you how I feel. And I'm just seeing a lot of craziness on the internet. Like so much. Like everything's one in ten stars. Everybody's like, that's the best Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie since the original. Or that's the worst movie I've seen since uh, a whole video of me cutting off my finger. Or whatever. Like it's just uh, hyperbole. is fucking ridiculous now. And I, I, I'm a lifelong exaggerator. Just naturally, I've always exaggerated. It's just like, that guy weighs like a million pounds. It's like, Dave, he's 190. Like, <laughs> I ate four, I ate a million things. I don't know. It's like, you ate a bag of chips. Like, I am an exaggerator. Everybody knows that. Just listen to me talk. But, like, the hyperbole and shit is just fucking out, out of fucking... Oh, it's insane. Like, and people are like, that's the worst thing, that's the worst... Everybody, it's feel like shock, like, reviews everywhere. Shock everything. Shock fucking worst movie ever. Shock, it's like, whatever. Me watching the new trailer to this movie. Ah! Like, and I know I made stupid faces in those thumbnails, but... Guilty too, probably, yeah. We're all guilty. But anyways, it's just... I'm old. Get off my lawn. I can rant about stupid shit like this all day. I don't want to talk about it anymore. My son is dead. Um, the Cannibal Holocaust, we're done. That's it, my son is dead. I don't want to talk about him no more. Now leave me alone. Okay, this next one up is from uh, this company here. This is sovhor.com. Well, it's a website, and then he started releasing his own. Uh, Tony Masello, um releases a bunch of shot-on-video movies. Some of them are older, like Ice Cream Man, Mr. Ice Cream Man. Some are newer. So uh, if you're interested in SOV, go to that website, check it out, check out their store. He's a really nice guy, released tons of movies, close to 50 releases already. Mr. Ice Cream Man is a title that I'd heard about for years. Uh, never actually watched it. This is from the glorious year of 1995. Uh, yeah. And, okay. So, there's a pretty cool story about this one. Uh, you can watch the little special feature on here. The director talking about the commentary and stuff. He talks about, basically, he was making this Mr. Ice Cream Man, like a regional horror film, low budget himself. And um, they sent in, uh, somehow, somebody else, they think, got some whiff of it. And then later... Ice Cream Man was announced. And they were making it around the same time. Ice Cream Man got made first because they had, you know, a little bit more money behind it and everything with Clint Howard. And they actually reached out to them and asked questions and never got a response. So it's very weird, very shady. They're not saying that it happened. But this is not a movie that was made to rip off Ice Cream Man. This movie was made around the same time, if not before. Just released after because they didn't have access to those things. So anyways, uh, this is a very low-budget SOV. It's very, like, regional, like, group of people getting together and making this movie. The director was 21 years old, so take that in consideration, right? These people are very young. Um, and while I was watching it, the first thing I noticed was that I was very surprised by how ambitious the, um, the amount of extras they had. There's, like, kids going to school, and I was like, that is pretty crazy that they have all these kids going to school, a lot of extras running around. I was just was kind of shocked by it. The opening did kind of remind me of that uh, childhood friend movie from 94 with uh, the Mexican kids all going to school and like the murder around there, like just all the kids interacting. Some of the acting, of course, is a little over the top. It's very hard to get convincing performances from kids, especially in SOV and all that low budget stuff. So a little bit over the top here. Uh, I thought it was kind of funny that one of the kids looked fairly older, but he's like carrying a Barney doll at one point. That's just like, you know, like time 
kind of humor and everything like that. So, uh, or the kid could just be very big for his age, or maybe he's playing a younger kid. So, anyways, uh, yeah, basically, this film has uh, a creepy ice cream truck driver kind of driving around the neighborhood, like a custom weird van. The guy is very creepy, big, big smiley face, red hair, and uh, kids end up getting murdered. Now, as far as the murders are concerned, most of them are off screen. They're not overly graphic or anything like that. There is a, a nice chase scene and that ends in like a river and everything like that that I thought was very effective and very well done and that kind of low-budget aspect. Although, later they open the body bag and the kid's not wet anymore. I get it. Those are nitpicks, you know, like you expect them to drop, douse the kid in water, yada, yada, yada. A big Hollywood movie would have somebody wet or something like that. But, of course, you can kind of just forgive those kind of things. Like I said, there's no real gore to speak of. There's maybe like a frozen hand in the ice cream and everything like that, but nothing explicit. Um, and like, uh, like it, it's very kind of mild. Um, it's not overly like graphic and you kind of want kind of more of those things there. When you're looking for a kind of a SOV slasher movie, you kind of expect a little bit of more. Um, I guess like the, the charm of the movie would probably come from just the, the, the regional quality about it, or it's not even super regional, but the low budget quality about it, and like knowing that these people came together and made a movie. Uh, of course, there's a big birthday uh, scene at the very end, and you know who's going to show up, Mr. Ice Cream Man. Um, I, I didn't absolutely love this movie, if you guys haven't uh, noticed or anything like that. Um, but like I said, I did uh, definitely take in consideration this being made by a 21 year old, and it's made on a low budget, and it's made with all these extras, and it seemed like they really called in a lot of favor during the scenes with like police around I was like there's a lot of like stuff going around in the background like cop cars and it feels like legit all that stuff felt so legit when we have like these cops and the body bags and a lot of props and stuff I was like that stuff all seems so like legit on, and on a level for a low budget film like even even compared to like some of the bigger budget SOV movies that you see or professional SOV movies so I was like wow that's that's impressive but then when it came to the kills I was very let down because I was actually expecting some sort of you know <laughs> comparative quality amongst them and listening to commentary and interviews i guess i didn't realize how low budget this actually was um yeah so like i said this is a movie where i guess the story behind it interests me a little bit more than the movie itself um as far as the special features are concerned we have an audio commentary with mac hale and jim mills the makers of the films and basically the two stars um sov the true independence episode ice cream the making of mr ice cream man creating the ice cream truck a rare behind the scenes look which is kind of cool because they uh they tell the story how they picked this how they got this truck and it's very unique and different lucky not just your typical ice cream truck interview with cast members henry uh wexhauser and devon carell david hayes on dead uh, live productions dead alive productions originally released a lot of kind of stuff that people would know like meet the feebles and uh feast and there's a couple other ones not the not the newer feast from dimension or whatever but original poster art concept video behind the scenes stills gallery mr ice cream man trailers trailers for other sobhor.com releases um it's a very short movie too so it doesn't really run out it's uh you know wear out it's welcome um it's always nice to keep sov movies short if you know what i mean um but uh if you guys aren't familiar with sov horror they put out a bunch of stuff i have covered a few on here uh metal noir and uh what was the art gallery uh, spirits uh, art gallery one which was pretty interesting so check those out and go over to the website and look through see if you see anything you like i'm definitely going to be covering a couple more of their movies uh truth or dare 2 writer's block which is an unofficial sequel to truth or dare which i didn't really know i don't even think i knew it exists and uh horror girl which you saw in the update and probably a couple more down the line uh i like tony tony's a nice guy uh putting himself out there doesn't need to do this so uh if any of these inter uh review like any of these titles sound like they're up your alley go check out the website he often runs sales so you can pick them up relatively cheap so mr ice cream man was one that i'm glad i watched uh it's not something that i absolutely loved or anything like that there's a lot of like 
kind of just uh, a semi meandering things that you would see in an SOV movie. Um, but again, I would recommend watching a lot of these with other people, like not just by yourself or anything like that, if that makes any sense. Maybe, you know, have a couple drinks with it if you're a drinker or, or some other kind of activities that you might want to do. Uh, but yeah, so that's Mr. Ice Cream Man. Okay, next up is the Patreon pick. And since I watched Mr. Ice Cream Man, I decided to put the Patreon pick of Chocolate Strawberry Vanilla. And this one, what, what was this, 2013, 2014? And I know when this one came out, I absolutely loved it. I raved about it. I think it was probably my favorite horror film of that year. Uh, so yeah, Chocolate Strawberry Vanilla is a super interesting movie made in Australia. Um, low budget kind of film, not super low budget, but uh, it stars Glenn Maynard who is kind of this outcast guy. He's lonely. Uh, I feel like he probably is somewhat on the spectrum, you know, of some sort. And he works as an ice cream man. And the first five minutes of the movie, he basically backs his car up and he kills his only friend, his cat. Uh, he's very depressed about the entire situation. And... He, he just is a very odd person. He, he drives to the same location and, and sets up shop, his ice cream truck. And there's like a, a drug dealer there who's a complete asshole. And he just has a, a very kind of habitual-like life. He goes to this uh, place uh, every day, this carryout, maybe it's a photo, photography place. And may, they pick up their mail there as well. I think it's like a po you know, post office kind of place. And talks to the girl there as their only friend. And he always watches this television program, which is kind of like these... Um, these really like corny like soap operas that are actually done in a very comedic over the top way and uh, he becomes infatuated with uh, the lead of the show uh, and in fact she actually visits his ice cream truck one day and that only kind of perpetuates all this infatuation with her so yeah this is one of these films that follows kind of an odd character and you know something's gonna break something's gonna like kind of come crashing down with them uh you have a lot of sympathy for this character you truly feel bad for him right from day one and you get into some of his psychology like him looking at the camera and talking and telling about his day almost like a video diary or, or, or a vlog kind of deal so like you get to understand him and at times it's very darkly comedic of his like silliness and and as it goes on, he starts to like detach more from reality and, you know, the show that he's watching becomes more part of his real life and he pictures himself in the show and like he has these flashes of being in a spaghetti western. He obviously has an infatuation with stuff like you know, Clint Eastwood and all that kind of thing. And so like he'll he'll see himself standing off against people in his everyday life that he doesn't like. So and also as it goes on, you learn to know more about him and his background and you know exactly where this kind of story is gonna go. Uh the lead performance from Glenn Maynard is really top notch. It's really, you know, at times like darkly comedic, but always sad and always tragic and you always feel really bad for the character. Uh yeah. So like there's all that stuff going on and his main little monologue at the very end of the film, uh, Chocolate Strawberry Vanilla is touching. Um, I, I really like this one. I, I really think that it kind of pulls at your heartstrings. And um, it would be a little difficult, even like I, I said, like even like seven years later, eight years later, it's hard to betray people who possibly have like a mental, you know, uh, you know, problem without like getting like drug over the coals about it, you know, because some people will say, well, that's offensive to people, maybe with Asperger's or or you know, uh, autism or something like that. Uh, and and you know, it is what it is. It, it can kind of somewhat, you could kind of see that to some people, but again, uh, it is a film and it is a product of its time, even, even 10 years ago, almost now. So it's, it was a little bit different, uh, but it, it kind of does become like, it will be like a little sad when you can almost make anything. But so yeah, anyways, I, I just thought it was a really top notch film. 
Uh, I don't want to spoil absolutely everything about the movie. I, I did get in a lot of the details about it already, but it, it, it's a film that is like uh, also, like I said, the, the, on the commentary, the the it's like darkly comedic and has that kind of edge to it. On the commentary, the director and the filmmakers and the writers and stuff, they talk about some of their influences. And they bring up stuff like Taxi Driver, and you could definitely see that. And King of Comedy. And that's in here as well, like that that break from reality. And you're going to have that moment where the character does realize what's happening and it's just going to be really tragic and, and heartbreaking and unsettling for the most part. But you're always rooting for, for uh, Glenn Maynard's character. I, I don't know how to go about that, you know what I mean? Just kind of a, a character that you you always want to root for. But uh, it's a, it's a really interesting film. Um, it's really uh, a great film too. I've always liked it. I've always had a, a soft spot for it, and I'm really glad that I got a, a chance to rewatch it. So if you've not seen this one, I really recommend checking it out. Uh, yeah. So this is a actually import uh, from is an Australian import from Monster Pictures. It has audio commentary, trailers, cast and crew interviews, deleted scenes, round the block episodes, which is the kind of the goofy show that they're watching. They have full episodes on there, and Baby did a bat bat thing short film. So. Uh, like, I don't have all that much to say about it without completely spoiling everything about it, but uh, there is a nice little spaghetti western shout-out in there. Um, yeah, it, it's just a good film, and you meet a lot of zany kind of weird characters along the way who buy ice cream and stuff like that, and some who just steal it. That is chocolate, strawberry, vanilla. Love it. Okay, guys, we're going to get into those 1994 movies. Prison officials say Dahmer's head may have been bashed against a wall. They have last-minute appeals failed to stop the execution of America's most notorious mass murderer. John Wayne Gacy. Throughout, Chikatilo presented himself as a wretched victim of nature's indifference. Say the truth. Reality! What do you know about reality? It's not a solitary story. This is not reality. Not reality. Not reality. This is reality. The delusion of a disordered mind, a phantom, a spirit, a ghost. Look, he hasn't got any relatives, and the coma he's in is irreversible. Give me a signature and I'll pull the plug now. Fuck off. Alright, and the first one is one that I've covered on here before, but how could you go down and watch the 1994 movies without re-watching Cemetery Man? Or a.k.a. what? Delamorte? Delamore? 
anyways, this is a Michele Sawave movie from 1994. This is the last horror film he directed for a long period of time. I think he's done some television after years down. But uh, yeah, anyways, I, uh, I've always loved this movie. I've always loved this director. Stars Rupert Everett, who's kind of like a heartthrob at, at a certain time. Um, and uh, some other uh, known people in here is Mickey Knox. Mickey Knox is in Ghoulies 2, but he used to work in a lot of Italian cinema dubbing over stuff like that. Uh, yeah, so anyways, this is based off a comic book series called Dylan Dog, which I'm not too familiar with. They did make a movie, uh, Dylan Dog, years down the line. I never did get a chance to check it out. Um, I, and it's kind of strange to think that this was based off a comic, but when you see a lot of the stuff in here, you can see it. Um, so Cemetery Man, um, like I said, I, I absolutely love this movie. I've talked about it before, and I'm a big fan. Uh, and I don't know really what I said in the original review. I'm probably going to repeat myself a lot here. So it basically follows a character um, who runs a cemetery. Um, sometimes he's referred to as an engineer. And he's not an engineer. Um, but uh, so every day, some of the people, he has to deal with corpses that have come back to life. So he tells the story, kind of an exposition narration, which the movie has a lot of. It's just beautiful old cemetery. Uh, he tells everybody that on the seventh day, some people, he doesn't know why, come back to life. He calls them returners. Him and his sidekick, Noggy, who seems to be kind of slow, uh, only speaks in nah and yah, kind of uh, basically. He might just say nah, and in different inflections, uh, he seems to understand him. Uh, they basically have to deal with the corpses and get rid of them. The zombies, when they do come back, are awesome looking. They're, they're rotten. They're just very stylized. This whole movie is super stylized. Um, Mikel Sawave... Um, he worked in Italian cinema for a very long time. He worked with Joe D'Amato, who produced his first film, Stage Fright, from 87, which is a great kind of slasher-style Italian film. And also he worked with Dario Argento, who helped produce The Church, a.k.a. Demons 3, and The Sec, a.k.a. Demons 4, which are both really good films as well. He had worked with Fulci in films and everything. So, like, this guy made his rounds working with a lot of the Italian uh, film, maestro, film maestros to learn his craft, and it absolutely shows. Like, he was kind of like the last great Italian horror director, is what most people say, like the last hope. And, you know, so, like, this movie, most consider the last great Italian horror film from that cycle. Um... And me personally, I think it's brilliant. So it, it also, it, it's it's really a dark comedy in a lot of ways. It plays very tragic. Like, it, it's like Shakespeare in an Italian zombie film, if that makes any sense to people. Because it has the comedy, the romance, and the tragedy all wrapped up in one. But it's all done brilliantly. It's all mixed together very well. But it's also very gory and and it, it fits a lot in the vein with, like, the style of humor with something like peter jackson dead alive in, in some ways like the splatter and everything so there's just a lot of characters and they paint this town uh very well like uh mickey knox is a police detective and who always is constantly inter like, like <laughs> basically coming to the cemetery to uh, like not necessarily accuse um uh rupert everett of the crimes but it just talked to him and everything and, and the back and forth is absolutely hilarious and and the movie it feels like it's about being trapped in your circumstances not being able to escape your fate just being stuck there and the opening and ending kind of will suggest that that 
maybe your life is not what it seems. Maybe you cannot escape anything. And it's just destiny or fate. And what is reality, you know? And like the opening of the 94, I use a lot of like mess up, mix ups with reality, you know, with like In the Mouth of Madness and New Nightmare and, and uh, uh, Roadkill and stuff like that. Like the reality of uh, blurring reality and Cemetery Man, like the blurring of reality and fantasy and mental illness and all that kind of stuff mixing. But in this town, uh, he's supposedly an impotent guy. Um, and he just like, uh, it just, no one believes that he could commit some of the crimes that are happening around the cemetery, but he is kind of responsible for a lot of them or was there. Um, the way the zombies work is sometimes that they, uh, they talk occasionally some of the bigger characters. Um, like I said, I, I caught myself laughing so hard in here. Like every time Mickey Knox talks, he just says the most inappropriate shit and laughs. Like at one point, I'm going to spoil this because everybody should have seen Cemetery Man. If you haven't fast forward, watch it, come back if you want. Or don't. Uh, Mickey Knox, uh, at one point, uh, basically a, a group of uh, people on motorcycles, young couple, they get in this accident with a bus full of nuns and Boy Scouts and everybody dies. And, uh, and Mickey Knox is like, yeah, slaughter the innocents. And he's all laughing. He's like, eh, eh. And you're just like, why is that funny? What is wrong with this guy? Like the, the bitter irony and cynicism in him. It just And it's just like um, towards the end of the film, like no matter what uh, Rupert ever does or, or Delamore, no matter what he does, he cannot be caught. And you start to realize that, you know, he is stuck in this weird fantasy, this this fate of himself. Now, I've heard people say, like, they have their ideas of what it's about. And I can see that, like, there's a character in here named Franco, his best friend, who at one point is in a coma. And people have brought this up. And I could see that, like, it's just as good as any other theory or otherwise. But, like, how, how else would you, you know... Uh, like the love star part stuff in this movie is absolutely brilliant as well. Like this character keeps showing in uh, on Ifachi and, and she plays three different characters, these three different love interests. And she's absolutely gorgeous. She looks amazing as a zombie as well. And it's just like, it's so torturous what happens through the whole entire thing. Um, Nagi is a character that I absolutely love. I, I think he's brilliant. I, I love his performance. I love his character. I love everything he does. Um, there's a part in the film when uh, one of the characters who dies in uh, the motorcycle accident is buried with his motorcycle. This is the kind of humor because he can't be separated. He loves his motorcycle, but he's also like intermingled with the, the, the fucking the bike and shit. So they bury him with the bike. And when he ri rises, like he's on the bike and motorcycle is all intermingled. It's just awesome. It's fucking so metal. It's about the coolest thing ever. And um, he's riding through the cemetery and uh, Delamore is trying to shoot at him and uh, Nagi runs up late not like completely like missing him the bike's coming out and he throws like a, a spade at him like a shovel and like it's just such a great comedy beat and the movie's filled with these kind of comedy beats this dark also this nasty dark humor too like when he goes into the hospital and he starts killing people and his interactions with everybody there um, the doctor not noticing the dead people on the ground you, you, you realize that you're in this fictional world or this world where he is so determined by his fate that no matter what he does, he's trapped, you know, and, and it's just like you're, you're tortured, you're trapped. And, and I love this movie. Like, I love that aspect about it. I also love the humor. I love the set design. Like I said, there's so many cool things. I love the special effects that, uh, Del Mora's encounters with death. Uh, stop killing the dead, they're mine, want to just kill the living, all this kind of stuff in there. It, it's a great story about insanity and fantasy and love and tragedy and everything. It's just got it all. And it's just, a, it's, it's a masterpiece. As far as the two releases I showed you here, 
We have the Shameless disc, which doesn't look particularly great, I'm going to be honest with you, but it does have a new interview with writer-director Gianni Romali, a new interview with S, uh, special effects artist Sergio Stivaletti, who is one of the best. He worked on Demons as well. And then we have an audio commentary by Fact Track director Michele Suave and writer Gianni Romaldi, English audio and optional Italian. Now, I will say that the sound on here is, what is it on here? It's, um, it's Adobe Digital 2.0. So... Eh, it didn't look right, and it is in the 1080i. This one is a Japanese Blu-ray. It's in 1080p, and it has true 5.1 surround sound, so it's a better disc. I know people don't want to hear that because it's a little bit more expensive, and at this rate, we probably should just wait for uh, hopefully another release coming out in America or the UK, somewhere. I, I know I don't want to badmouth Shameless because, hell, it's an affordable disc, but... This is a masterpiece, and it deserves the Arrow, the Vinegar Syndrome, hell, even a Scream Factory release. Anybody fucking releases to Severin. Like, I would love Arrow to put this. This has Arrow written all over it. Um, even a second sight in the UK, anybody put this bad boy out. It's a wonderful movie with a wonderful cast. Um, I also love what it says about, you know, the bureaucracy, the marriage shit. This. So his daughter dies at one point. And he's sitting there, and he's sad looking at the coffin, and then he's like, how could she do this to me? And right on the eve of an election! And that kind of shit just gets me. It's just like, yeah, they don't really give a shit about nothing except their votes. And it's just it's just a beautiful movie. Um, <laughs> I love it. I love every frame of it. I love everything about it. And it's not for everybody, but uh, some people also sniff glue, so I what can I say? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I love Cemetery Man. Okay, this next one is super bizarre. This is called Fatal Obsession. I do not have a copy. It's it's pretty rare. It's a Hong Kong flick from 1994, of course. And it has uh, Lily Chung in it. She's like the actress I recognize the most. I'm sure there's some other people in here. Only so many actors and actresses working in Hong Kong in these crazy kind of movies. So this is a bizarre one. We have these kind of dancers. They're kind of the main characters here. One uh, one is kind of dating a musician, but it turns out he's actually cheating on her with another dancer, yada, yada, yada. One day while they're driving home, there's also a friend that's obsessed with the this singer and knows all about the cheating. Uh, they have a car accident, and they uh, are basically stranded by the cemetery. They didn't know it's a cemetery. They kind of wander in here, and they, uh, they kind of get separated and lost. And the singer here, she ends up, being hard to like they don't know where she is and they eventually find her after calling the police and, and dealing with the guy who runs this place who says he's protecting the spirits yada yada it's very funny when he actually speaks out when he hears the people he's like who uh who, alive or dead or alive or spirits and and they find her and she's kind of like like curled up in this in this casket and then afterwards she gets back and she starts acting very strange and they call it she's been obsessed obsessed she has an obsession she's obsessed instead of possessed you know so it turns out that she's been possessed but she's been possessed by this ancient japanese like warlord that used to torture and rape all the the people in hong kong it's probably stems you know from the the big part of world war ii where the japanese invaded hong kong and there was a lot of murder and death and everything there's a couple movies made about it hong kong 1941 on fire from 1994 is one and uh there's another one of those made i think it's like hong kong they're very similar titles but it's been done a couple times 
that they kind of obviously they're going to bring that up when they can in films so it's a very important part of their history yada 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 so the villain is an ancient Japanese warlord who has possessed this young girl to like this dancer and basically what happens is she starts like carrying out all these horrible things and she goes completely nuts she gets a samurai sword she starts torturing her friends she starts getting more sexually explicit there's a pretty crazy dance scene where she tries to seduce one of her friends that uh, was cool uh, I think that the dancing element's really neat because there's um, some really high like kind of stress dancing think Suspiria think other European horror films um, so that that was a nice aspect I wish it looked better I mean there's no really great quality of this film around um, you know VCD rips and stuff like that and VCDs are weird because like if you don't watch them on your computer from the dat files when you get them or you don't have the actual vcd yourself you know a lot of them are kind of like uh the left speaker will be cantonese and the right speaker will be mandarin so it's, it's not necessarily something opportune like sound quality on v and vcds and everything like that so it is what it is um anyways like um and then if you watch the sounds both playing you get a weird smorgasbord of the sound effects being correct but you have like overlapping cantonese and mandarin fucking dialogue don't want to get into it can be very confusing if you're you're not watching the proper releases on these because you can't buy them anywhere because they've been long out of fucking print so if anybody knows where i get my fatal obsession let me know because uh, i did enjoy this one but uh, like i said uh, there's a there's some really fucked up part with a dog that i don't want to get into that like it's just so funny in like the 94 i'm watching all these movies where people just don't have any love for their animals they're just like they're upset about it but like if i like if you fuck with my pet and it's my pet i'm gonna fuck you up I am going to fuck you up. Um, like, so like they just don't care, but, uh, yeah, this one was pretty unique. Uh, really cool stuff in there. Now it might be a little slow pace for some people, but, uh, I, I like Lily Chung. She's in a bunch of movies from this time. She's in Red to Kill from 94. She's in Brother of Darkness from 94. She's in Daughter of Darkness from 93. And she's also in the next movie that I'm going to talk a little bit about called Fatal Encounter. So, like, she was all over this time, like, right here. So, like, it's some weird that a lot of the movies that I focused on watching for 94 and some of the movies that were before it, like, I had seen her in. So, like, I've seen, like, a lot of her horror and exploitation output. She's done a bunch more, but I just love her look. She looks great. And, uh, she's a good performance in Red to Kill as well. So, anyways, just liked her. And she's in here as well doing a good job as always so yeah now okay this next one uh i decided to watch it's not really a horror film but it does i guess it had like an exploitation quality about it and it's listed as a drama kind of thriller it has uh lily chung in here and this is fatal encounter uh this dvd has been sitting on my shelf for 20 years so i was like you know what fuck it we're gonna watch fatal encounter for 94 um and I hadn't heard too much about it. Um, and also, it fits in with the thing that I noticed. Uh, it's kind of like an L, like a theme in a lot of 94 movies. It's a, it's popped up a couple times, as it kind of would. You know, the AIDS or HIV was really kind of uh, very scary. It's still scary, of course. But in the 94, it was just one of these things. It was absolutely terrifying. Like, as a young kid, I was 8 years old. Like, I was always worried. Like, I can't. Like, it's just dumb shit. Like, all the time. Like, I remember we went bowling once. And I, I wasn't wearing socks for some reason. And they gave me the bowling shoes. And I was like, I can't wear the bowling shoes without socks what if someone bled in the bowling shoe and i have a cut on my foot and i catch aids from the bowling shoe just like complete paranoia about aids and hiv so like when you see movies from like 94 like la aids jabber and they're just like exploiting that fear of hiv and everything you're just like wow or even love minus zero equal infinity in here which had an uh, element of hiv in there so it's just like uh it's just very something that was very much a product of its time so when it's in the movie 
it just makes you feel really uncomfortable or scary. It sets you in that time and place. And Fatal Encounter is the one that got me the most with that. Like, yes, it feels exploitative at times, but also it feels kind of like it's trying to like get a like a social message across about HIV and AIDS. Like, it's like remember this though, but then it'll do a lot of exploitative things. Like, there's a gay character in there that like Joe like they're like messing with about catching HIV, and then at the end they they have this thing in there that's like kind of like I don't even want to say it's a stinger, but it's just kind of like a fucked up ending where you're like, oh wow. Um, but anyways, this is just like the most depressing shit that anybody could possibly write to like, it, it's just so fucking depressing and it made me ill to my stomach. So the movie opens up kind of with this young girl, like there's a, like a group of, there's like an uh, older couple walking through and all these young kids are like, like like money money we need money money and they're just like leave me to fuck alone so they throw like a couple dollars in the air to get them get away from them to get them the kids to run away and all the kids start fighting over it and then like younger like teens see it and they run out and start fighting over it and there's like this big thing where people are fighting over like a dollar or two and like it goes crazy and eventually the person who gets it is this young girl she ends up getting this doll, a couple dollars, and she looks like she's been living on the street. She just looks like nobody's ever cared for her. And you feel bad for her right away. And, and the movie goes on, like you see, like her get raped by these two assholes coming out of a bar, and they like that she like some she rips some money from the pocket and holds it in her hand, and they're just like whatever. She's a prostitute. Let her keep the money after they raped her. And it's just like a nasty scene, of course. Like any Hong Kong movie, it's like almost every one of them has some sort of like rape in it a lot of the time. So like that happens, and like you gotta assume that this is where the original virus came from in this movie. So like, like it almost is like AIDS is weaponized in this movie. So you're like watching this character, like, because you know what it's about, right? You know, like the AIDS storyline, everything's posted on there. There's characters bringing it up and everything like that. So it's definitely in like your mind at the time of the film and everything. So like, you know that this character has just kind of been infected with HIV AIDS. Um, and you're just like, fuck, that's so dark. So after that, she kind of, realizes that she can get food and then and stuff with that money and she just kind of falls into the prostitution which is very unpleasant and the other character we kind of follow in the film is this truck driver who just recently had a young boy with Lily Chung as his wife and they seem very happy you know he has a best friend who's constantly sleeping with the prostitutes and everything like that and always trying to get him to do it and he always remains you know faithful to his wife but she's just had been pregnant so they obviously sex was not on the table for him and one day uh He's kind of pulled over, and uh, they're in this. They're, they're stuck up because there's like a, uh, I guess like a, you know, like a, a strike or something, and they're stuck there. And um, he goes to like tell a prostitute he's not interested to go away. And when he comes back, that young girl is sitting in his car, and she basically somewhat forces herself on him, and he accepts reluctantly, but he doesn't. He can't control himself, which is really unpleasant as fuck, and he doesn't something happens with the condom and right there you're just like oh it's just and i'm spoiling a lot of this movie just because it's so rare and it's not much talk about probably not much talked about or reviewed but it's just something that really fucking was made me sick and ill and depressed and just like bleak as hell um and you're just like oh just watching people get hiv or aids in a movie is so unpleasant this is a this is a couple years before kids or a year before kids was made so, like, you know, I'm Kids by Larry Clark is the ultimate movie of watching people just, like, get their lives destroyed through this and just uh, the circum uh, consequences of your actions and everything like that. So, of course, it gets worse and worse and worse, and somebody contracts AIDS in his family that I, it's just like, come on, man. Come on, I can't believe you're doing this awful stuff like that. And it just gets so depressing. And 
there's like actually some really like kind of poignant lines in here where like he mentions you know there's two people in a tiger cage and like that whole speech you're just like that's so sad and and but also at the same time touching and and heartwarming but fucking depressing and uh like the very ending is also probably somewhat exploitative as hell uh but like there's also these elements of craziness with the with the the character who actually uh gave the truck driver a hiv and uh her character is almost like since like she's almost become wild because of her circumstances and just how society has treated her she's just a victim of you know, society and circum everything like that. So like, she just doesn't care. She fights and she lashes and, and she bites somebody and she starts to bite. And like, when she realizes she has HIV, she weaponizes it similar to Ebola syndrome and made two years later in 96 by uh, Herman Yao with Anthony Wong, where we have, you know, him running down the street, spinning at people, Ebola, Ebola that happens here, but with blood. And there's like a lot of police officers. And like, again, it ends in the most possible tragic, depressing way you could think of. So like this movie is, is pretty ruthless in a lot of ways and heartless. And, and uh, yeah, it's just depressing. And it's almost like a, um, uh, a PSA or something too, like watch out for, do not sleep with prostitutes. Or if you do wear a fucking condom or, you know, all this kind of stuff like that. But, um, in a lot of ways it shows you that like lo that poor side and just how people are just treated and exploited. And it's just lots of fucked up shit in here. Uh, that's fatal encounter. Um, a rather depressing movie. Well, I was like watching this. Like, why am I doing this to myself? Like I was like completely uh, invested, but also depressed and just like, Oh, very, very, uh, sad stuff here that is fatal encounter and like it's very funny around this time there are so many movies with the fatal from hong kong is like fatal obsession fatal encounter there's three fucking movies called fatal love from like relatively the same time a year like 92 93 so it's just like so much fatalness there's also fatal vacation which was a hong kong film i don't know what about that fatalness or whatever so a lot of fatal shit going on here anyways there's another movie called fatal encounter from korea do not mix it up made much later um but yeah uh so if this sounds like it's up your alley, if you want to be very depressed and have some, I don't want to even say this, exploitation, um, then I guess it is Fatal Encounter. Okay, the next one up is from uh, New Concord Pictures here, Roger Corman's company. I don't know if Corman was still uh, the owner of this company when this one was made in 94, but this is The Onborn 2. This is a sequel, obviously, to The Onborn 1 from 91, which I covered. Uh, yeah, so this one, uh, it doesn't really feel like exactly a direct sequel to Part 1. Like, um, Part 1 ends in a really weird way with like characters and whatnot. Like, so I was like, oh, a lot of these characters repeat, or maybe I'm just not remembering everything. But Onborn 1 was obviously about... Uh, James Karen was a mad scientist and he was at Brooke Adams. He implanted her with this. They could never get pregnant. He implanted her with this super baby that was obviously evil and going to be crazy and not whatnot. So this one carries that on. We have a young woman who is, uh, has one of these kind of crazy babies. You know, the baby's mutated right away. The baby's never shown. Um, and she keeps it secret. Her husband's no longer in the picture. She's, she's very mysterious kind of character. Um, she's basically has one of these babies in this super nice house. I don't know how she affords the, this damn house in LA or whatever. It's like, they even talk about the price and they're like, how much was your house? The neighbors, the nosy neighbors, and they're like 450,000. Like ours was 500,000. I'm just like in 94. God, I'm just like, <laughs> That's a lot of fucking money. I know it's probably even way more now for that kind of house in that area, for sure. Probably like two million. But so anyways, there's also a character going around uh, right in the beginning of the film, murders a young kid. And they seem to have a hit list. They're a mysterious woman going around. And there's a lot of good scenes of her, scary scenes of her going in like hospitals. There's a pretty intense scene with a baby execution. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, baby execution. And you're just like, fuck. And you kind of figure out what the hell's going on. This character obviously knows these babies ain't no good. She's going to take them out. And their, cross, their paths are going to cross. Uh, there's a neighbor that's kind of a love interest. He's going to get involved. And there's some... Uh, some people that were called uh, kind of from the one of those people that show up to help children. I can't think of what that organization's called where the, uh, you know, the, I can't fucking social services for children and everything like that. One of which is played by Michael McDonald, which I find very funny because in 94, he was also in Leprechaun 2 and he's in on board too. And he also went on to, you know, he's from Mad TV. He's Stuart. Look what I can do. He's in a bunch of movies in Austin Powers. He's in Halloween Kills. So, yeah, it's just very funny to see him and be like in some horror movies at this time. And and both two sequels from 94. And he doesn't have much luck in either of them, Leprechaun 2 and Unborn 2. But this one's much better than you would expect. The baby's absolutely ridiculous. He's monstrosity. He has telekinesis as well. Like I said, there's a lot of movies with weird baby creatures or fetus creatures or having fucking telekinesis or telepathy or whatever. He has telepathy, sorry. Like uh, Miami Golem or, you know, Miami Horror, aka Miami Horror, or even what's that one I watched with the Fred Olin Ray movie with the weird baby in the fucking jar. There's that one as well. So there's like a, with, um, uh, geez, the guy from Deadly Prey is in it. Uh, so like, yeah, there's a lot of movies with babies in jars around this time. Mad scientist shit, little creatures attacking. And this one has some decent moments. There's actually a decent kill count there's a lot of more better action scenes like shootouts and stuff than you would expect in this one but i actually was impressed with the oddborn too like i thought the performances were solid i thought the nosy neighbors were hilarious um just a lot better than one would expect i'm going to be brutally honest with you like you don't really go into this kind of movie expecting very much they see the back you see the mutated baby you're like this is gonna be a lot of fun and it is a lot of fun I i was very impressed with it uh much better than i expected and um i, I like it just as much as onboard one Maybe even a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the last one from 94 is going to be Scanner Cop 1. I should, I'm should i going to review these back-to-back because I had to watch Scanner Cop 2 as well after I watched it. So Scanner Cop 1 was made in 94. And uh, yeah, it stars was this Daniel Quinn, who's in a bunch of stuff, including Rubber, and a bunch of other actors as well. Um, it has uh, freaking Richard Lynch as a baddie in here. So this is a Vinegar Syndrome 4K release. That's right, Scanner Cop 1 and 2 are on 4K, yet we haven't got Day of the Dead. So Vinegar Syndrome, like that's so crazy. Like a lot of the bigger horror films or whatever don't have 4Ks, but we get Scanner Cop. So uh, I had remembered, you know, the Scanner Cop uh, 1 and 2, the 4th and 5th Scanners movie, is being very entertaining. I used to have like a Civil DVD imported from Canada, and uh, I always remember them fondly. So rewatching them, uh, I actually think that they were just as good, if not better, than I remembered. So um, maybe it's the 4K release. It looks fucking spectacular. looks great. Sounds great. Uh, anyways, these are like kind of more low budget, you know, sci-fi horror films. But I love. I, I don't love the first Scanners. I like it. I think the concepts are great. Michael Ironside is fucking fantastic. McGoonan, Lawrence Day, and they're all good. Um, but. Uh, the second and third scanners I don't love either. Second I think is my least favorite, but third's a little bit better. Time we get to fourth, I I think it's improved on a lot of the, the other movies of the series. It's much better than two and three, and, and maybe even more enjoyable than part one. Like, I don't think it's a better film, but more enjoyable to watch. So this one follows the story of a young man who lost his father at a young age. Uh, he was a scanner. He had mental problems, and something went crazy. Um, a cop uh, who he saved during the process takes a, a liking to him and realizes that he can't give him to this hospital that wants him because they're performing mad experiments. The guy, actually, who he runs into is Luca Ber- whatever Luca Bervarati, or whatever the fuck his name is, who directed Ghoulies and uh, The Grannies, an actor in some movies as well. 
and um, this cop decides to you know raise him as his own. And being a cop, the the young kid becomes like you know a cop as well. Looks following his his stepfather and stepmother or his adopted parents, his footsteps. So uh, the father is actually played by. Um, what is his name? Something Grove. But he's a character actor you've seen before. He's in Army of Darkness. He plays Henry the Red. He's great in that. He's good in this as well. I really liked him. Good father figure in this kind of movie. So basically, of course, he becomes a scanner. And he has to use ephemeral to fight that urge. The first day on the job, he forgets to take his ephemeral, but it ends up saving his ass. His partner's a little confused by it. Kind of an old-timer who's taking him under his wing. And uh, quick, quick, quickly enough, these these movies move at a breakneck speed. All these cops start to get murdered in town, and uh, it's seemingly seemingly normal citizens are just shooting cops on sight. And we find out some mad, crazy person is behind it, and Richard Lynch and his like sidekick who uh, basically works for him. I, I can't think of her actual actress name, but she's pretty good too. Richard Lynch is one of the great baddies of like low budget cinema, and he was in some bigger cinema as well. You know, he's like the Seven Ups and uh, Missing in Action and. Uh, uh, what is the other one? Uh, Ninth Configuration. So he's in some bigger uh, bat movies too as the baddie. But he is absolutely fantastic in a lot of these B-movies like Scanner Cop or Trancers 2 or Puppet Master 3. Or a later day he would pop up in stuff like Laid to Rest or Holo uh, Mike, uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween. Richard Lynch is one of the best things you can have happen to your, your B-movie for sure. And he's in this and he's fantastic as this evil mad scientist that has a history with police officers and he doesn't fucking like them. And he's trying to get rid of him obviously by his weird drugs and manipulation and psychic shit so he becomes like kind of like the main villain for the scanner cop because he has some sort of these weird mind control powers as well but anyways uh, our scanner cop who is, is basically trying to figure out everything while all these cops are getting murdered there's some really crazy special effects by John Carl Buechler which are uh, Buechler always had really crazy effects and melting and shit like that there's a lot of cool stuff and including people's things popping out of their heads. Heads fucking exploding. It is a Scanners movie. Uh, but yeah, there's also a really cool element here where they have like these weird in-mind fights. So he has a fight with a character who's actually dying. And like there's a, a part where he kind of like goes into this character's mind as they're going like going to hell. So we have like, some weird fun lighting techniques and cool shit like that. Um, Scanner Cop 1. This movie is a blast. This is a perfect B-movie. This is a perfect low-budget movie that you watch and are just vastly entertained. Scanner Cop is something that I would watch or it would pop on television uh, on the Sci-Fi Channel as a kid and I'd watch the whole damn thing and I'd be thoroughly entertained. Um, seeing it in 4K really does wonders for it. It looks fucking fantastic. It looks amazing. There's also some other B-movie actors or, or uh, character actors that pop up in this movie that I was really happy to see. Brian James is in here who I absolutely love. His partner is an a actor I've seen a lot of movies but i absolutely have to mention mark ralston as well who plays drake in aliens he's also in rush hour he's the partner with rex lynn he's in um geez he's an eraser uh mark ralston is a as a character actor that's in a lot of movies he's always solid he's good in this one too he plays like a lieutenant. But uh, yeah, this is a blast. And there's a lot of shootouts. There's a lot of squibs. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of gooey special effects. Like, I mean, if, you, if you're if you like, oh, Scanner's 4, fuck that. That's stupid. Like, these are so enjoyable. Like, I don't sleep on it. Like, it, it's such a blast. Like, I can't speak well enough about how much fun I had with these. So outside the law, this, as far as the special features are concerned, the uh, the Scanner Cop Revelation, uh, Resolution, oh, what is it? Revelation, Revulsion, jeez. 
can't speak today. Part one, extended making of documentary featuring interviews with producer-director Pierre David, actress Hilary Shepard, actor Mark Ralston, actor Richard Grove, special effects artist Ted Haynes, special effects artist James Rowland, stunt coordinator Jeff Prute, director, Scanner Cop 2, Steve Barnett, and screenwriter Your Next, Simon Barrett. Simon Barrett is has nothing to do with these movies, but he's a fan, so he talks a little bit about it. And he kind of has a similar sentiment to what I have about the Scanner movies, where he's like, one, he doesn't love... But I do have a lot of respect for one. And two and three, he's like, whatever. Likes three a little bit more. than four and five, he's like, these are getting good. And I would agree with them. And then we have a commentary track by We Hate Movies Podcast. Yeah, this is a Raging Free 4K. Then we have a Blu-ray. Anyways, highly recommended. I recommend you pick up the Scanner Cop Part uh, 4. <laughs> Scanner Scanners 4, or AK Scanner Cop 1. Uh, and I wish this series continued. It's a lot of fun. But it did continue, Dave, with Scanner Cop 2. Or Scanner Cop uh, to the Showdown, or Scanner Cop the Showdown, or Scanner Showdown, or whatever it's called. And now we don't have uh, Richard Grove returning, but we do have Daniel Quinn, of course. And uh, we also have Patrick Kilpatrick, who is one of the best B-movie baddies of all time. He is in some more A-list pictures, but if you were to tell, if you were to ask me who my favorite goons are in movies, it would be Patrick Kilpatrick, Nicholas Worth, and Brian Thompson. These guys, I think, were just career goons, career villains, career baddies, career henchmen, and they always delivered on the goods. Sometimes they would chew the scenery. Brian James, I would throw in there too, or Michael Ironside, people like that. They would chew the scenery but they would always do such a wonderful job, bringing so much more than they had to to the roles. Uh, so basically in this one, also uh, Robert Forrester is in here, which I love seeing. Um, so what happens is uh, Daniel Quinn is still the scanner cop, and there is a baddie going around this time, and he's an evil scanner, which I love because that's great. you got to have the scanner cop fight a fucking evil scanner. And this guy has a history with the scanner cop. Uh, you know, he ar- tried to arrest him. His brother got killed. Whatever. You get that in the detail. Patrick Kilpatrick has always been a monster. You kind of understand that. And um, uh, with, with the commentary, Brad Henderson uh, does the commentary on this. And he starts talking about it. He says, I love that Patrick Kilpatrick, he's talking with the director, Steve Barnett. He says, I love that he has these childlike temper tantrums. And he truly does. Like, there's a lot of these parts where he's screaming and yelling. And you're like, yeah, he is playing it like this kind of childlike uh, anger. You know, like a sociopath would. Like, he doesn't get his way. He crosses his arms. I'm doing what I want. But in the opening, like, he murders these cops brutally. And like, as it goes on, you start to learn that he is, he's picked up a couple tricks that a lot of the other scanners don't know. He's starting to go around and, and drain all the other scanners. It's a lot like Highlander, right? Where there can only be one, you, you suck on their powers, but it's more like Dr. Sleep with Rose the Hat, who sucks these other shining people dry. And it's just like... I know what you did, Stephen King. You, st- I mean, like, Scanners feels like a Stephen King story anyways, but we get to Scanners 5, Scanners Showdown, and it legitimately is Dr. Sleep. Like, Patrick Kilpatrick is going around draining all these Scanners to get their powers so he can face off against Scanner Cop. And so it's just, this is a fucking blast. Patrick Kilpatrick is chewing the scenery. He's saying all these lines. He's like, you wretched cop bastard. Like, I, I've always loved him. Like, I always thought he was fucking great. Um, if you guys don't know who Patrick Kilpatrick is, he's in, you know, like Toxic Avenger is one of his early roles. He plays Leroy. But he's uh, amazing and stuff like Death Warrant of the Sandman, Burke. He's in Best of the Best 2, where he plays a really fun goon along with Nicholas Worth and Mike Genovese. Genovese. Um, he's also in, you know, what, uh, what else is he in? He's 
He's in uh, Eraser as well. With that's also Mark Rolston from the last movie. He's in um, he's in some bigger titles too. Class of 1999. He's he's a great uh, robot teacher, android teacher in that movie, where he's just fucking amazing, Mr. Bryles. So like, I always loved him. I always thought he was one of the best baddies, and I've always liked this movie due to his performance. And and uh, he talks in the special features that little extended making of on here, where him and Daniel Quinn were passing out between takes because they were like raging out to get their veins popping out their heads like we just pass out face first on the concrete and like crew members would jump over us like oh whatever and move along and and i love that but there's a lot of gooey effects in here basically carl buchler continues with this effects and and the um and there's a lot of melted bodies like there's this great little art piece where all the characters are melted into like a ball um and i love that a couple characters there's a uh, one uh where somebody answers the door uh, and there's like a metal screen fucking awesome genius like there's so many cool kills in this movie like and like you think of all the like the crazy like movies that sequels that were made of franchises and a lot of them don't don't explore like the cool shit you could do with it and scanners cop 2 scanners showdown really does all you could do with it like i mean i really do i would love to see more of these like i love to see scanner cop 3 or or more scanner movies i know the mind's eye was made which is kind of it feels like a Scanners movie. It's by um, uh, the director of Bliss and VFW, and and I love that movie too. Like I like those last three movies. All he did were really great. I don't know why his name is is, is losing. Uh, Joe uh, Bagos. So like I love that movie, and like this one I think is is personally my favorite Scanners. Like out of the five, this is my personal favorite. I'm not telling you it's better than the first one, but I'll tell you what. If somebody's like, what scanners you want? Let's put in four and five. Let's watch those again. They have, like, the closest connective tissue. Um, yeah. So, like, it brings me to the question of the week I'll ask later, but what franchises get better as they go on? Not many, and I think some of the scanners movies actually do. As far as the special features are concerned, we have a commentary track with Steve Barnett. Seems like a real cool guy. He also did Mind Warp, which I remember liking. Outside the Law, the Scanner Cop, uh, Revelation, uh, uh, Revolution, Revolution, jeez, I'm such a fucking idiot. Part 2, Extended Making of Dr. Documentary featuring interviews with director Steve Barnett, producer Pierre David, actor Patrick Kilpatrick, actress uh, Christine Hagee, actor Stephen Mendel, composer Richard Bauer, special effects artist Jeff Farley, makeup effects artist Tom Irving, special effects artist uh, James Rowland, and screenwriter, you're next, Simon Barrett. And also you'll spot uh, freaking Kane Hodder in a small cameo in here in the very beginning. Just a lot of fun. These are really good action sci-fi horror flicks that I recommend you check out in this 4K set. I love this. I love this. I'm glad I had this. I'm so happy I got to rewatch this. Let's put it this way. I watched both. I watched the first one in the morning before I had to go to work and I started watching the second one and I was thinking about when I got home from work I was like I hopped in the shower ran out and I was like I gotta finish I gotta remember I gotta watch Scanner Cop 2 I gotta finish it I was, I was thinking about it all day like I gotta I, love, I just enjoyed it and as you get older you don't always enjoy everything as much as you used to but rewatching those I was super captivated super fun great stuff Scanner Cop 1 and 2 uh, for Vinegar Syndrome 4K releases great stuff great stuff hey guys what's up we're here for Blind Spot, and you pick this you picked a blind spot because it means you haven't seen it. I, I hate these fucking rules. Anyways, <laughs> you picked this movie. I don't know what the hell it is. I don't. I've never really seen any movies like this. But I know you read uh, like uh, manga, manga or comics or stuff yeah. like this. So yeah, that's what I imagine you've been reading. Um, yeah. So why don't you tell us what the hell this thing is and why you picked it and why you're going to federal prison soon. <laughs> so it's uh, it's called Dokuse. It's uh, it means classmates. Um, it is a just a standalone film based off a, I think a 2008 manga, um, 
basically about two classmates that fall in love and it's just kind of like a slice of life anime. Yeah, it falls. It's divided into like four chapters. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. at first I thought they're going to do spring, winter, fall, and summer. They don't really do that. No, I think, it, they, it, 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 I think it's spring, autumn, and then the other two are like character chapters. Yeah, yeah. So uh, basically, it's it's like your kind of awkward love story where we have mm-hmm. uh, like a popular guy who's like in a band and everything, and then he like falls for some nerdy guy, and it's it's weird to me because it's a high school love story, and like those are always kind of corny, but then it's also anime, and it, it's like young people. There's not really any heavy sexual situations in it, no. but it's definitely like I feel like it is somewhat like made to a certain audience that like are into like the weird, like not, I don't want to say weird, but they're definitely like, I don't know if it's more of a love thing or a sex thing in these kind of stories for people. So, so this is like considered Shonen Eye. Typically, um, the audience for like Shonen Eye and like Yihaui is actually for females. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and this is a female director and it's a female director. And most, most of the genre is made by females. Um, and I think it's not like necessarily like inherent to Japan. Like even in the case of like Korea, um, most Asian uh, like Yaoi Shonen I BL titles like like it's it's female created for a female audience. Um, so you don't really see necessarily. It's not graphic. The most graphic yeah. thing is somebody feels a butt cheek, and they don't even really show that. Right, yeah. yeah. I, I thought it was weird with the teacher stuff. I was like, this makes it even more uncomfortable just for the sole fact. Like, I'm not, like, uh, like sticking my nose up to it, but at the sole thing, it's just like, I don't even, like, know what to say about this. Like, it is, like, it's, like, heartwarming to a certain extent, but also just um, any, like, other typical teenage love story in a lot of ways that... I don't even want to call it a coming-of-age story. It's very typical. I guess the only thing that sets it apart is that it's an anime and it's a homosexual story, even though I'm sure there's tons of homosexual stories at the same time. Yeah, yeah, there's hundreds of these. I I mean, you know, I'm no stranger to Yaoi and BL. Um, You know, but it is becoming... BL. I don't know. Boys Love. BL. Yes. Um, So the... (laughs) Should stay with (laughs) Issa Sato films. That's the proper first thing. Sado. Yeah. Um, well, well, that's the thing, though, is, like, most of his stuff isn't, like, necessarily explicit or graphic. I think it does have the reputation because there is stuff that that definitely is. Um, but it is a coming-of-age story. Um, and that whole teacher scene was, I think, kind of like the through line into the coming-of-age because he sees what's going on um, and... His whole scene with, I can't think of the character's name at the top of my head right now, but with the nerdy kid, it's like, like if this is a relationship you want to go into, you know, for your life, and that's the relationship you want to do, but you have to make sure that you're wanting to do it. Um, the big dilemma is, like, the popular kid is kind of like an aloof um, you know, not committing yeah, to Yeah, he doesn't really also want to do anything, like... He doesn't have ambition. Well, yeah, the young no person ambition. has the uh, the nerdy one has more ambition because he's smart and looks at things the other way. And the other ones, it's like a brain versus a heart kind of story, right? right? But I guess they somewhat meet in the middle at the end of the story. Yeah, you um, know, but but dilemma is is like because they're at like the final year of high school and they're about well, to go into college. It's every love story ever. Like it is, even if it you is. take Scrooge love story, it's like work ambition versus love. All every every story. I, I mean, it's, the, like it's super typical. Like the, I can't the, say these tales are as, as old as mankind. Um, 
But um, there's a lot of stories in the Bible about two high school boys falling in love. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But if we want to go into Bible Discord uh, or Discord, so you know we, we can do this later because I I know a thing or two. I feel like you're ruining my reputation by making me cover shit like this. I'm supposed to be covering like nasty fetish horror movies and regular horror movies and westerns and just crazy shit and you got me watching this light-hearted fucking boys love anime <laughs> they have absolutely nothing to say about i'm not mad about it it wasn't horrible it was in, kind of endearing but at the same time i'm just like confused that i'm a 35 year old man watching this not understand like i don't know what this is made for it's like it's made for a 16 year old girl and i'm a 35 year old man so i'm not sure what to say um <clears throat> Well, I think the animation is fantastic. I like the character designs. They're incredibly, like, lanky, overly stylized. Um, the music is, is cute. Um, it does play into, like, the theme of different seasons with, like, different animals yeah. appearing on screen. Um, it starts off really, like, the two classmates kind of, like, help each other in music class. And the one thing that he's actually trying to do it to impress the, the teacher, teacher. And that's yeah, not I mean, necessarily the case. Um, I can't give this a rating. I just want you to know that. I don't, I don't oh, if you can't give it a rating, you can't. I mean, I don't hate it. Um, I, don't, I don't love it. It is what it is. Um, this is based off of a, a manga that I read years ago, and I, I had thought had ended. Um, and then, like, in watching the film, it's like, well, oh, it, the manga continued. So, you know, I, I am curious to, like, go back and reread that and see where it's at. Um, because it is very, like, slice of lifey. Um, which to me is like, like that's like the anime I, I tend to prefer is I well I do like some shonen or like fantasy stuff. Um, the slice of life stuff I think is always just like a really fun like endearing. I watch. like when they fight. Oh yeah, <laughs> I like the monsters. Like the what was the one you had us watch? Uh, had me watch Devil Man was cool. Devil Man was cool. Um, I like uh, Ninja Scroll, uh, Demon City, uh, Shin, whatever it is, and stuff like that. I still need to get to Wicked City. I'd love to watch that one. Um, I seen Wicked City so in a long time. Those are definitely the ones that I'm into. Like uh, the mm. other ones, I don't. I don't even watch newer anime, and I don't watch series typically. Period. Like I, I get burned out on all television series. I don't know why. Even a lot of miniseries, I lose interest. Like I've been watching The Kingdom for 1994, and I'm like halfway through the first 1994. It's four and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And it's good, but I'm already starting to lose interest. That's why when people are like, you should watch this television show. It's like, guys, I don't think you understand how much I don't give a fuck about TV. <laughs> like, I can't, I can't give a fuck. You know, like I, I, I tend to watch more anime. Like, if I'm going to watch a TV show, it's typically going to be animated. It's usually going to be anime. Um, and then I, I think I started, I started watching Banana Fish. Uh, What's? Oh yeah, yeah, I've yeah. Seen the, some of that. Um, that was like a few weeks ago when, when I was sick with COVID. Um, and then I start to finish Given. And this one always reminded, or I guess I should say Given always reminded me of this one that I picked this week. And I'm like, and, and the, the Given anime is really good. And I'm like, but again, they won't watch TV show or anime. So it's like, well, Given's really good. I can't but, get but it I to watch... And watch eight episodes. But here's an hour-long condensed version of Given <laughs> with only one couple and not like 18. Well, four. What? I don't know what's going on. I'm not going to explain the plot to Given. Okay. Um, So, yeah, it's like I said, we have a lot of, like, we don't do TV on here typically. I try not to and stuff. But uh, I don't know. What would you rate this? Probably a four. Four Four out of five? five. Yeah. 
I mean, the animation's really good, really endearing. It is kind of lacking, I think, in... Yeah, it's it's in one of these books. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it's... Because it is, like I said, it, it's very slice of life. There isn't, like, necessarily an overarching plot. Um, it does take, like, several manga chapters and just kind of, like, condense them down into, like... You know, it's it's an hour-long adaptation of, like... I, I don't know, 30, 40 chapters of manga. So it's kind of like... Uh, it's not the full story, but it, it's definitely a good watch. Like I said, the animation's fun. The music's great. And it's on Amazon for a couple bucks to rent. Right, it's, it's only a couple bucks to rent. Um, It's touching and endearing. It's A1 Studios, which is like the same studio that did uh, Fairy Tale and a few other ones. Fairy Tale's trash, but... Okay, so uh, throw in some shade on that. <laughs> um, so I guess next week, uh, I'm going to give you a choice, which is something you never give me. Yeah. So, The Shining. Oh. <laughs> um, the Howling. We already watched The Howling. You never seen The Howling? Oh no, I'm thinking like American Wolf in London. No, what am I thinking of? Um, Silver Bullet. Yeah, uh, Heavenly Creatures from '94. Heavenly Creatures. And I kind of am curious. I'm gonna have to rewatch it, and I just want to see you watch The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Four: The New Generation. What's um, Heavenly Creatures? It's the Peter Jackson one. Well, let's do that one. Okay, we'll do Heavenly Creatures. Okay. Yeah. Right. Sounds good. So Heavenly Creatures is next week, and we're done. I got to say a thing about The Shining. Like He hasn't even seen it, but he's got a lot to say about it. Because I, I just can't do Stephen Ste- King. It may, it, this is the one to watch. Because Stephen King hates this movie because it's not like his book. Stan- and you know, it's also by, like, probably considered the greatest director of all time. The thing is, what's funny is that Stephen King's like, that's not my book, that sucks. It's like, well, Kubrick's a better director than you are a writer, so who... Well, yeah, Sorry. you know, but, you know, so was, you know, Brian De Palma... Is a better director than Stephen King as a writer? Right. Maybe, but, yeah. But the, the problem with Stephen King, and I don't know how much the story has changed from the book to the movie, but it has been in, in my experience that every time I watch Stephen King... You get invested into these characters only for the ending to be just whatever Deus Ex Machina event. Carrie that wasn't Steven, that. Carrie was set up. A meteor falls on Carrie. That didn't happen in the movie. How, how's the movie end? Oh, she collapses the house. Yes. See, yeah. I'm saying the movies are different. <laughs> like if you take Christine for example, like the, the where the car comes from is different, and, and like it's completely different. It's different but it's just like i don't i don't want to watch them they're di- they're not every, like stephen king i feel like books i feel like that but this so the handful of stephen king stuff that i have seen has been the story has gotten itself into a corner and we need something examples was i don't remember Storm that happening. Of the century the Sa- mist didn't happen in silver bullet also, Silver the, Bullet also you're using references The Mist, but The Mist novella doesn't end that way. The Mist novella actually ends how you would want to end it, and the movie ends different. Well, I didn't like it. You didn't. You liked The Mist. It was okay. It was like a fucking three. You're crazy. Right. It's just The Mist of, is great. Also, the same characters show up in every single iteration of something. It's just like, I don't want to watch it. I, I don't understand. He does have the religious zealot, the fucking 50s bullies. Right. It's, a lot it, of those it's like, you've you seen one, you've seen them all. I just, 
I could see something so much but, but more. But you could blame George Romero. Like, here comes that racist guy. <laughs> like, I mean, there's like it always happens. But at least George Romero did it with taste. Romero is my favorite director of all time, <coughs> and I think his movies are brilliant. But I'm just saying, everyone has their character types. Like Cronenberg, here comes that cold male lead who has also, no human emotion. I'll be honest, I prefer the snake version of Jack Nicholson over the real Jack Nicholson. Because um, you've never seen The Shining. You never seen one. Have you seen One Flew Cuckoo's Nest? Yeah, I've seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's you've Nest. You've seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Batman are the only and Jack Nicholson Batman. movies you've no, ever seen. No, we just watched the one where he was a werewolf again. A wolf again? He was never a werewolf before. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you what, being a werewolf is great for your hairline. Right, absolutely. <laughs> it brings your hairline back. I saw, yeah. So it's like. I don't want to see Jack Nicholson. Except it might have had the opposite effect on James Spader, because after that movie, he went completely bald. Who's James Spader? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the emperor of a guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if we have to watch The Shining, then we have to watch The Shining. We're going to watch it eventually. But I, I won't enjoy any second of it, just so you guys know. <laughs> but you can enjoy the fact that Stephen King was watching it and being like, this isn't my book. I hate this movie. And then 20 years I, later, I, everyone was like, this is the greatest I'm not film 14. Ever made. I don't take relish in that necessarily all the time, except in very specific What are you talking situations. about? You're a Scorpio, aren't you? <laughs> right. Yes, because Zodiac science determine everything. Absolutely. It's all predetermined. None of your actions matter. Scorpios <laughs> don't like Stephen King. Charlie. <laughs> Don't serve. <laughs> don't serve. <laughs> you don't even know what it's from. I know what it's from. It's from the Jim Van Beveren movie. No, it ain't. It's from Apocalypse Now. A same Charlie thing. Don't serve. <laughs> All right. Well, I seen it in the Jim Van Beveren movie, and I didn't yeah see because it in they Apocalypse were now. they were making fun of the kid for wearing it because it was the Charlie Manson. Charlie don't serve, but it comes from you know whatever. All right, we're out of here. We're out. Next Bye. week is what? Heavenly Creatures? Yeah, Heavenly Creatures. You sure you don't want to watch The Howling? I got it on 4K now. I don't want to watch it. Werewolf movies suck. Not Joe Dante's werewolf movie. It has a bunch of character actors. It has Patrick. You don't know who that is, but it has... It has, it has Patrick. <laughs> it but has, you don't know who that is. <laughs> but you don't know? I was going to say Patrick Mackney, but you don't know who that is. It's <laughs> yeah. from Waxwork. Um, it has fucking... Um, Jeez, I can't believe I'm forgetting one of the greatest character actors of all time. Um, I got more scruples in a sardine on Ash Wednesday. Yeehaw. Oh, um, Slim Pickens. Slim Pickens, yeah. Slim Pickens I'm not watching Slim, Slim Pickens. is only good in one movie. Slim Pickens is always good. I didn't even actually know that <laughs> Slim Pickens was a real person. He's in Doctor Strangelove. I know he's in Doctor Strangelove. He's also I... in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. He's in tons of shit. Slim Pickens. Yeah, I don't think he's real. <laughs> he's in Blazing Slattles. No, Slim Pickens. <laughs> you you got to see the holic. If you gave me a gun and told me to go kill Slim Pickens. He's I'm already pretty... dead. Yeah, see? All right, we're done. Okay, let's get into these questions, comments, concerns, all that stuff. So last week I basically asked you a country that was really hard for you to follow as far as movies are concerned, like something that just really hard to connect with. So not all these are related to that. But Isimicio, back when I was younger, I had more patience. I had the misfortune of stumbling across the movie uh, Dab, or whatever the hell it is, a weird Turkish film that somehow generated a lot of underground buzz. It was such a bad movie, atrocious CGI, and it could hardly follow it or even cared to. Apparently, this film now went on to become an entire franchise, which is hilarious to me. Thankfully, uh, can Everall come along and redeemed... Uh, thankfully, can Everall came along and redeemed Turkey with Baskin and uh, Housewife. Uh, I love Baskin. I find most mainland China horror films to be hard to follow. Really not a great country for horror in general, but yet I still hope they'll come out with a great horror film someday. Taiwan and Hong Kong do a better job with the genre. Bad Boy Bubby is a pretty insane film. Poor guy, though. Definitely got the shit out of the stick with his family life. One of those films that make you feel dirty and want to shower after. Still an excellent watch, though. Uh, Mariander 
I remember watching, but can't recall if I liked it or not. I always confuse that movie with Dollmaster, which came out the same year, I think. Than I don't know Dollmaster. Thanos forty three Infinity. If you switch the VHS for internet on Cronenberg's Video Drum channel, it's the equivalent of the dark web. Also, the concepts in Video Drum are what could become current with uh, Elon's Al Neutral Network. Very dangerous and truly terrifying vision of the not so far away future. I, I can see that for sure. Uh, Zach Nolan, I've seen so many great films based on your recommendations. Messiah of Evil, Killer of Dolls, and Haruka the Goblin are just a few. Um, saying that, um, you got to remember that. Mondo Macabro is putting out a couple of those titles. So, like, they're responsible for, like, you know, people want, like, uh, garnering a lot of interest on them. Although I did cover Haruko the Goblin before. But with episode 250 coming up, I was wondering if you remember doing episode one. Any memories? Did you think you would be doing consistent videos every week for so long? Long live Excuse King. I have no idea. Um, from episode one, I know earlier I wore the, like the nice shirt. I was like, I'm going to take this very professional. I'm going to be like a newscaster. But then like after a while I was like, ah, excuse gang, I suck. So, uh, yeah, I remember it was also in the old house in the basement. I missed the desk. Like I also liked the lighting in the old place better. It was from more overhead and I had more room to move and I could like lean on the table. I just liked the setup much better at the old place, but it was also in a basement. I didn't like keep my movies down there. Just the DVDs were down there, but I had like a lot of setup, like dehumidifiers and all that kind of stuff. And, and there was no, I had everything on uh, uh, cinder blocks just in case, but I do miss the setup. I missed the room. So like, I literally thought about it. I haven't hatched garage. I thought about, you know, getting a desk and kind of setting up a little studio in the garage to film the weekly videos because it's cramped in here. Like there's just too much shit going on. I know I like the movies in the background for the reviews, but it also just, it's aggravating. It's aggravating. Move, bump, bump. It's just fucking annoying. So, um, I went on a tirade there, but I remember that I did. I reviewed the dirty dozen in the first week. It was one of the first few weeks. So, uh, cool hand Luke. What's up, man. Always enjoy your update content i'm sure it's you've been asked before but what's the name of that movie with the head stomp scene from the 94 opening that is my sweet satan by jim van beber nikki brown have you seen 2002 french film movie irreversible yes i actually covered it on here seen it a couple times picked up the new release um they haven't had a chance to rewatch uh rewatch that on the indicator release but uh yeah i am a fan of the film it's it's it's, it's a really well-made film. Very disturbing. Horse Cinema. Don't forget another strange role for Steve Rail Steve Rails back as Ed Gein. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I didn't remember he was in that. I just never did get to see it. And I we I, I start talking to him. And he says, yeah, it came from a First Look Studios uh, DVD. It had, they made Ed Gein, Ted Bunny, and Dahmer. He said, you can find it individually. you got to see it. It gives a very creepy performance. And then uh, Adam Watson comments, he was a perfect Ed Gein actually portraying the character, not an unofficial portrayal like Robert Blossoms did in Deranged. Not that I'm criticizing his awesome performance. Yeah, I love Robert Blossoms in Deranged. And Horse Cinema, you're correct. There was a Gacy one. I mentioned there's a, a Gacy one too. He's like, I think that might have been released a little later. Do see if you could find the Ed Gein and do a review of it. Not quite as good as Deranged, but pretty good. The uh, Gulag, uh, Olaf is severely underrated. He's basically referencing the Primortis or Primutos review. Ken Coakley. This is a little bit uh, um, personal, but I, I, I usually read everything that people comment. Uh, when you were talking about the difficulties of moving and taking your movies, maybe think about what I will have to do once I get out of the nursing home. And we know that Ken Coakley's been suffering from uh, recovering in the nursing home. Nursing home, He's kept us up to date on it, so um, always hope he gets better quicker. I just lost my apartment. I have until the end of the month to get stuff I still want. My brother wants to sell off my movies while my sister wants to keep uh, keep them for me. I want to eventually move to Texas and hop. hope to have the movies to bring to Texas in a U-Haul. I have Asperger's and my movies are pretty much my world. I haven't seen them in a year and a half and I feel it. I feel really bad because I understand like, you know, 
uh, I definitely love my movies. Like I'm completely like obsessed with my films and the collecting and watching. Like I do watch all my movies, but like I understand that connection to your films. Like if I ever lose everything, I, I won't be buying again. Not like I did. Maybe I'll buy a movie and then just give it away after I fucking watch it. Like I just be very bitter and very sad. And I'll be like, that guy's like, I used to have a copy of that. Yeah. Used to have it. Oh, go on. You know, like I'll just go crazy like that. But, um, and then he also says, um, when you talked about having reservations about Lords of Chaos, I thought about how I did as well. I was a thrash metal guy in the eighties. So the movie was a way of remembering the old days. He says, I sometimes have a hard time understanding French films and still do. Oddly enough, I understand Igmar Bergman films being poor, watching foreign films is the only way that I get to see the other countries. Yeah. I know how you feel on that. And a lot of those movies, basically a lot of like the old Jallies and, and Spanish and Euro horror movies, Italian ones were kind of like, uh, almost like a vacation thing for people to see the other different countries. That's why they were always in like exotic locations or stuff like that. So Mark Humphreys, Eastern European, uh, Polish, Russian, etc. Very different from Western Europe. I have one in my collection at the moment, Vi. Vi is different. I love Vi. I think Vi is a little bit more approachable, but they have a lot of context on that release as well. So Jamal Potter, Australia, can't understand a word, even with subtitles. Australia, I never had too much a problem with. Uh, Chet Turner, French films like High Tension require complete attention. I love French films, but not for the casual viewing. Yeah, there's a lot of countries that you really are like, or, or movies that you're like, I like this a lot, but I just, like, I need full focus. I can't just go in there like half, uh, you know, like half tired or something like that. David Gibson, if you don't pay close enough attention, Japanese samurai films can get a bit confusing, especially when in black and white, when you have a large cast with similar wardrobe and hairstyles. One can get lost trying to figure out who is who. Any war film. Especially black and white, like, because, like, especially World War II films, you have a lot of the helmets, so you don't see their, like, hairstyle, you don't see, like, a lot of their, like, um, anytime everybody has the same hairstyle or same helmets, any movie, like, it's, it's, it can be difficult. I agree with Samurai films, but I also say a lot of the Shaw Brothers Kung Fu films, because a lot of people have the same hairstyles and things like that. You can lose, uh, like, who the fuck was that? Who's that character? Until you start to get more, you know, situated with them and everything. Keith Boyd Jr. Asian films in general I don't understand and usually have trouble focusing if they aren't incredibly violent. Stick with Akashi Mike then. Uh, Jason Fetters, Ukrainian and Russian films like Earth 1930 by Dovenchko and The Mirror by Tar- uh, Tarfowski, who did Stalker and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. Like, I had trouble following the movie Hard to Be a God, but I really liked it. And uh, Check Off my, my Car, those movies were hard to follow, but they were rewarding. Like, I'm glad I watched them. Uh, they were very cool and interesting and well-made, but they weren't the easiest things to digest. Uh, Nick Moore. A most perplexing and interesting question, sir. Much as I hate to admit it, Japanese horror can be quite tough to grasp fully, especially if the timeline is fluid. I had to watch the original Juon uh, quite uh, a few times to understand what was going on and who everybody was. All the more embarrassing because I had seen the U.S. version first. You're not going to give a digital timeout, right, Mr. Parka? No, I uh, neglected Asian ghost stories for years. I Now I've seen like uh, Pulse, Dark Water, the Ringu films, and a lot of other ones, but I still have never dived into the Grudge films. I've been holding off, hopefully, for like a nice Blu-ray release or Blu-ray set of them because there's two real early ones like um, that were made for TV that are low budget that I'd like to watch before I get into the Grudge 1 and 2, and then there's the American remake. So, and there's a lot of Grudge movies, so the Grudge is like something that I want to tackle. But I don't want to just like be neglectful of any of the kind of minor grudge films that came first. So then questions. Uh, do you have a movie says, uh, do you ha- do you think a movie says something about the country that made it? Yeah. 
Um, sometimes movies will like if you watch an American movie, like a lot of American movies have almost all that like 60s and 70s stuff really said something about the culture. Like a Western movie, look at it. And a man who shot Liberty Valance says, "Print the legend, not the story." You know, it's such a thing. Like every movie, a lot of them reflect the country that made it. Like, and a lot of movies are very critical of the country that made it. That's why a lot of movies get banned. That's why a lot of movies are buried. Stuff like that. There's so much that a country, a movie can tell you about its country, its culture, its stuff. It's what's funny in that country. Yes, absolutely. It'd be hard to find a movie that doesn't say anything about its country. Um, okay, so if you were a movie censor, would you censor anything? Uh, for a rating, yes. If you told me uh, they submitted Cannibal Holocaust, I'm like, we want an R rating. I'm like, this is not an R-rated movie. But as a, uh, as somebody who doesn't really believe in censorship, no giving something at that time, something that's not an R rating, is a death sentence. So I would not be a censor, personally. Unless the industry was completely different, that you could put an R-rated or an uh, X movie in theaters and advertise and stuff, and people could go see it without being, you know, uh, basically they buried those movies. So I would not want to do that, personally. But uh, I can, uh, yeah, so it, it would be iffy. But I, I don't think that, uh, I don't want anything to be banned. Can you enjoy a film even if you don't get it? Um, hmm. Maybe. Uh, you can enjoy movies for certain reasons. Like, the first time somebody watches Suspiria, there's like, uh, if you're not familiar with Italian cinema or strange cinema, you might be lost. You might be like, I don't fucking know. But, like, visually and, and how it was shot and cinematography and techniques and the kills and all that kind of stuff, you're like, and the music, that's all great. Enough for me to want to revisit and kind of appreciate it on a different level. A lot of movies you only appreciate on surface level sometimes, and then you go back and rewatch. Or, you know, somebody will watch something and they'll be, like, taken back by the gore or the violence or the action, and they'll be like, that was great, but then they'll go back and watch him and be like, oh, well, this story is really interesting and stuff, too. Like, if you look at The Killer by, uh, uh, you know, um, John Woo, like, at first, you're like, the action's so fucking awesome, but, like, when I watched that, I was like, yeah, the action's great, too, but there's a really good, like, heartfelt story in there, too, that's very, like, tragic and almost, like, Shakespearean action. So, like, yeah, like, you can enjoy a movie if you don't 100% get it. Does anybody ever get anything right on the first time? You get some things about it, but certain people see dirt, certain things. Like That's why like if you've seen a movie 100 times and you see a lot of things that other people don't see and somebody watches it the first time and says that was a big pile of shit, you kind of don't take them seriously because they're only seeing it on that first, that first initial viewing. But you've seen it 30, 40 times, so they don't see things that you don't see. And, and maybe you're blind to certain problems of the movie. So, eh, yeah. I, I do think you can enjoy a movie if you don't 100% get it. Um, there's lots of movies like I, I thought I had appreciation for, but I didn't 100% get. And even at a young age, I was like, well, that's really interesting and different, I think, maybe, but I, do I get it? I don't fucking know. And sometimes you watch a movie and then, like, the director will be like, what I was trying to do was this. And you're like, I didn't see that at all, but I see it this way. Maybe I'm I, maybe I'm wrong, but I still like it for certain aspects. So, yeah, I mean, there is certain things. and It won't please everybody, though, but what does? And he says, till next week, keep up the good work. Thank you. And Daniel Detila or Titia, Polish, like a decagogue. I'd say Russian, but uh, Tarvowski's work isn't that tough for me. But Polish stuff. The Kilowoslowski films are really bleak and just too just tough to engage with, although they're brilliant. Yeah, that tends to happen a lot. So uh, for me, it would be a lot of uh, Russian cinema, like that kind of thing. Uh, that Turkish film I watched, um, The Serpent's Tale, was hard for me to, to understand and stuff like that. But uh, so I guess uh, next week, uh, for next week's question, I want to ask you, any horror franchise, since I talked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022 and Scanners 4 and 5, any horror franchise that you think gets better as it goes on? I do think the Scanners movies get 
more enjoyable as they go on. Uh, I mean, it, it's like the first one, and then a dip, and then a dip, and then it kind of goes up. So, like, yeah, let, let's let's see any horror franchises or any franchises in general that get better as they go on. It's a it's a rare rarity, but even I know people are gonna be kind of like Night of Living Dead. Like, I, I think those are my three favorite movies: Night, Dawn, and Day. But I, I prefer Day, Dawn, and Night in that order. Uh, obviously, Land not as good as those three, but still. So for a short while, it did go up for me. Um, as far as like importance and, and historical, no, it doesn't. But it goes a little bit down. But for, for enjoyment and what I personally love, it, it's day, dawn, and night. Um, so then I guess we're going to hop into that update. Okay, here we go. First up is the 4K of The Howling. Uh, yeah, it's been a long time since I watched The Howling. Uh, really looking forward to checking this one out in 4K. It's a great movie. Joe Dante flick. So yeah, cool stuff. Then we have Lipstick um, from Screen Factory. It's been a long time since I watched this one. Uh, yeah, Chris Sarandon. Uh, what was her name? Mary Hemingway. I can't remember her actress, the actress who stars in this movie. Margot Hemingway. Uh, yeah, Perry King's also in here. Ang Bancroft. It's been a long time. I don't remember any of that. So, yeah. So this is a movie I have not seen in years. Uh, pretty good stuff, though, if I remember correctly. We have The Farmer. Uh, this is a Scorpion release. Yes, he doesn't get mad. He gets even. This was supposedly a lost picture for years, and everybody wanted Scorpion to put this out, and they were driving. Uh, they're always complaining about it. I can't believe it actually exists. Uh, like this is one of those movies that I was like, is this even real? Is this a real movie? So I can't wait to watch The Farmer. It's supposed to be a good revenge exploitation style movie. Super Beast. Uh, this was going out of print. Uh, I, I got it from eBay. It has a hole punched in there, but I didn't really care much i just wanted it wanted the disc itself and it was a good price so i grabbed super beast before it goes out of print and it'll probably get released by kino or something so this is funny to me i i had to get um spontaneous i love this movie this was one of my favorite movies that came out that year just a blast uh it just got a release on blu-ray which is really cool to finally have this sucker on blu-ray um yeah because originally it was on dvd but look at the quality on this like print it out and everything it's i got the stupid picture focus on there but you look down here you can't even read barely read like any of the names like it's just it's just like it's so weird that a company like paramount is just straight like printing out their quality so low and it's funny because then you get like companies like make flicks that are putting out like the tempe movies and you get this badass slip cover of one of my all-time favorites uh movies bloodletting and it's just like that's so crazy that like the independents they always do but you know they're doing so much a better job on their releases like it just shows you that like the big companies really don't care about hard formats anymore but so anyways we got bloodletting here which i'm definitely going to review on blu-ray it's an sov but like what uh jr bookwalter like remasters all these movies and everything like that so he always does like new audios like 5.1 audio mixes and shit and cleans them up and it's worth the upgrade if you like the movie so yeah anyways great slip cover on this one uh james l edwards uh um, Ariana Albright. So just a great cast. If any of you not seen this one, uh, I highly recommend it. I think all the features are um, back here. Yeah, that look at all those features and everything like that. Um, just an excellent movie if you've never seen it. They threw a couple little freebies in here. The original disc that has the I Killed uh, Before on there. And then, uh, what is this? Shocking Tunes. Songs composed and performed by J.L. Bookwalter. Very cool. Um, so, and then we also have Shocking Shorts. This is part of the Black Friday, like, bundle. I think this is, like, just a bunch of shorts that J.L. Bookwalter made. I don't think any of them have ever been released or anything like that. So it's very cool. Yeah. Um, so, had to have that. <laughs> I definitely don't have any of these ones. So, very cool. Looks like a creep show there. I want my cake. There's a bunch of features as well. 
Um, so it looks like uh, on the uh, the Tempe stuff, all we're looking for to get released is stuff like um, Polymorph, Sandman. That still needs a nice release. Then we have Pink Films, Volume 5 and 6, Underwater Love, and Women Hellsong. I, I didn't get the first two volumes, unfortunately. I wish I would have. They're all long out of print, very expensive. This is Third Window Films. Uh, maybe if I could track them down or they reprint them or something, I'll pick them up. But yeah, so not seen those movies and they threw uh this company orbit dvd i ordered from them they had some good prices on some like some titles that i wanted they have like a little like stickers there obviously they're a fan of cult cinema we got thriller kind of with their logo um the gorgon old school one face of death there we got their little orbit dvd thing very cute uh so yeah these, these next three movies i ordered from them the good prices too so dead man's shoes i have the dvd of this i love this movie i think this is a masterpiece um yeah just a great stuff uh dark comedy just just sad like also depressing just just always patty constantine's great in that movie then we have uh ghost lovers from 88 films this is like their early uh kind of asian movies this is one of the only uh kind of horror movies i didn't have from the import so i went ahead and grabbed this one ghost lovers good price on it and this oh they also had this little sticker in there of orbit dvd jim varney <laughs> army of darkness so then we also have this karate uh warrior i know duncan mcleish on the podcast under stairs reviewed this one and this sounded really cheesy and really fun so good price though very good price on it so that's right the italian collection Look at all the features. 88 Films, uh, you know, their American stuff has been really good, their output, as far as, like, like quality control and stuff like that. But I do have a lot of their imports as well. But I guess we're going to hop back to uh, the video. Okay, guys, thank you very much for watching. And as always, have a good one. Hey. That's it, my son is dead. I don't want to talk about him no more. Now leave me alone. Goodbye.